welcome to Plenary Session. I'm your host, Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm a practicing hematologist-oncologist, and I'm associate professor of medicine. I'm interested in issues at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy, and that's what you're going to get on this podcast. Welcome to Season 2. This week on Plenary Session, we have a few things in store for you. First, I'm going to talk to you about the legendary oncologist, Dr. Charles Mortel, who passed away in 1994. I've discovered an interesting article about him that I think puts a lot of modern things in context. Next, we have two new segments for you this week. We have Question of the Week with Dr. Sven Olson, where we're going to be doing hematology-oncology boards review questions with one of the chief fellows. Next, we have a session with Audrey Tran called Questions from a Medical Student. On this segment, we're going to be taking questions from a medical student, and we're going to see how one faculty member, namely me, answer those questions with all of my biases and based on little to no evidence at all. Then, we have an interview with Dr. Adam Obley. This time, this is Screening 101. I've read so many misconceptions about cancer screening online that I want to pull all my hair out. I can't believe people haven't learned even the most basic fundamentals about cancer screening. Well, I brought one of the master educators here, Dr. Adam Obley. I got him back in the studio, and and I have him to give us Screening 101. This is a discussion you must listen to if you care about cancer screening and want to speak correctly about the data. You won't want to miss this episode of Plenary Session, Season 2. Stay tuned. But first, a thanks. I want to thank those of you who've gone online and support this podcast on Patreon.com. Patreon subscribers get access to the slides from lectures I give on Plenary Session. I also want to thank the hundreds of you who've gone to the iTunes store and reviewed this podcast. We appreciate that feedback. I also want to thank the dozens of you who've written reviews. A written review goes a long way. What can Plenary Session do for you? Email us your questions at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. Tweet to us at plenary underscore session. Let us know what you like about the podcast and let us know what you don't like. This year on season two, we're going to incorporate some new elements in the podcast and we want to know your feedback on them. Recently, I was looking up some articles by Dr. Charles Mortel. He was a legendary oncologist who worked at the Mayo Clinic. And while I was looking up these articles for a purpose that I shall not mention on this podcast, I came across his obituary. I thought it was quite provocative. It was written by Gina Collada in 1994. It was entitled, Charles Mortel, 66, Study Treatment and Cost of Cancer. It goes like this. Dr. Charles Mortel, a cancer researcher at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, died on Monday at his home. He was 66 and lived in Rochester. Dr. Mortel, who directed numerous studies of cancer treatments, was known for his insistence on scientific rigor. He was particularly irked when small preliminary studies were hailed as proof that new treatments were effective. He said such premature claims gave false hope to dying patients, and he noted that in fact most new drugs failed to fulfill their initial promise. It goes on. Two studies conducted by Dr. Mortel showed that Latril and vitamin C were ineffective against cancer. Another showed that chemotherapy and radiation were effective in treating patients with high-risk rectal cancer. More recently, he focused on the high cost of cancer treatments and questioned the use of standard but sometimes ineffective practices. Last year, he showed that a blood test often used to detect the recurrence of colon cancer after surgery was ineffective in improving cure rates. And he argued last year that the federal government should control the cost of drugs it had helped develop, rather than letting companies charge patients high prices. 
Born in Milwaukee, Dr. Mortel received a medical degree from the University of Illinois in Chicago in 1953. He joined the Mayo Clinic in 1954. And it goes on. The reason I opened with Dr. Mortel's obituary is it led me to read a very long article about Dr. Mortel that I want to tell you a little bit about. And then I want to bring this home and make a point about modern oncology and what the obituary for a modern oncologist would look like. So the article about Dr. Mortel that this obituary led me to read was one that came out in the Los Angeles Times in 1993 by Barry Siegel. It was entitled, Faith Lost, A Doctor Turns Bitter. A drug used as an animal dewormer is also found to help treat cancer. Its price jumps for cancer patients. A key researcher feels betrayed, but the maker says it's only recovering costs. I'm just going to read you lengthy excerpts from this article, but not the whole thing, because it's even much longer than what I, what I provide to you today. And then... I'm going to drive home a point I want to make. It goes like this. Rochester, Minnesota. The cautious Mayo Clinic researcher, a former president of the American Society of Clinical Oncology, had come to the NCI to describe a set of extraordinary test results. In a federally funded $11 million study of nearly 1,300 patients who'd undergone surgery to remove cancerous colon tissue, Mortel's team had reduced recurrence of the disease by 41% and death rate by 33% among those with advanced stage C cancer. They'd done this, incredibly, with a therapy that combined levamisole, which had been used for 30 years to rid farm animals of worms, and fluorouracil, a widely used but not terribly effective chemotherapy drug. By instinct, a skeptical physician, reluctant to endorse new drugs not clearly proven safe and effective, Mortel for once felt convinced enough to go along with what others were urging. The therapy, he agreed, should be provided at once, even before U.S. Food and Drug Administration approval. Mortel's faith in his science was matched by trust in his audience. He was at the NCI, after all, to hand over his test results to officials from J&J, the giant $12 billion a year healthcare company that markets and holds the patent on Levamisole. He was also there to offer Johnson & Johnson his considerable influence in winning FDA approval for this new combination. Quote, I will do everything I can to help get this treatment to patients, Mortel told the NCI, FDA, and J&J people sitting before him. I will appear before the FDA myself to speed up the approval process. In return, I ask for only one thing. All I want is a promise from Johnson & Johnson that you will market this at a reasonable price. And that's how the story begins. It goes on. A doctor storms around. One morning in late September 1990, a 77-year-old farm worker named Annie Rhymes stopped by her drugstore in Rockport, Illinois, to fill a prescription for her post-operative colon cancer treatment. She gasped when she learned that a bottle of Levamisole would cost $200. After all, down the road from the pharmacy at the local Farm and Fleet store, a comparable bottle of Levamisole intended for sheep as a dewormer was priced at $6.39. She ended up telling her physician, who told a reporter, and the day later, that reporter called Dr. Mortel. Mortel erupted when the reporter told him the news. He began to storm around, as he later put it. He provided the reporter with a string of angry quotes. He protested to Johnson & Johnson's sale representatives. In time, Johnson & Johnson grew concerned over such a public demonstration by a highly respected cancer researcher. One day, a company representative called Mortel from J&J headquarters in New Brunswick. Could they fly out to Mayo Clinic to discuss this matter? Soon, two J&J vice presidents were in Mortel's office, spreading out their graphics. Quote, They talked about all the money they had put into basic research, Mortel recalled. Then they showed me charts with three price structuring options. The first, $400 for a year supply covered profit, marketing and research, even though taxpayers actually paid for our research. The second and third options, $800 and $1,200 for a year supply, covered no additional research or profit. It was all for more promotion. 
Mortel understood perfectly why the vice presidents assumed these charts would please and mollify him. Many of those extra promotional dollars attached to the $1,200 price tag would go to doctors and hospitals. Most marketing by drug companies is aimed not at the consumer, but at the medical community that writes the prescriptions. This marketing offer comes camouflaged as educational and research grants. Increasingly, health economists say drug companies are hiring doctors as, quote, consultants and sponsoring conferences and offering contributions to clinics and nonprofit hospitals. Those who study such matters believe drug makers spend about $12 billion annually in marketing and promotion, about $1 billion more than they do on R&D. Educated estimates vary since the industry will not reveal precise figures, but Stephen Schondelmeyer, a professor of pharmaceutical management at University of Minnesota, says a typical drug company spends 16% of its budget on R&D and 20% on promotion. Watching this trend build in recent years, Mortel has grown ever more dismayed. Doctors have been offering a box of golf balls or donuts, but now there are enormous amounts of money on the table. Now every medical group Mortel's knows is taking drug money. More than once, Mortel himself has received overtures. One drug firm wanted to give his group $80,000 with no strings attached and no tie into the company's products. To Mortel, this was not research and development money. This was drug company marketing. He turned it down. The promotional chunk of J&J Levamisol pricing chart looked to Mortel to be nothing more than giving money to doctors and clinics. Quote, they didn't have to promote Levamisol, he said. They had extraordinary publicity and taxpayer-paid research. In essence, they were promoting J&J, not the drug. They were cultivating goodwill by putting money into doctors' pockets. I was not pleased. The patients will have to pay in the end. We doctors can pay for our own continuing education. There was no resolution, however. Instead, Mortel watched J&J continue to spend promotional money. The company, according to Mortel, asked Mayo Clinic colleagues to be a consultant on an educational program and ended up paying him $4,000 for editing four sentences that were already written. Other Mayo Clinic colleagues, Mortel reported, were provided free airline tickets, hotel rooms, and honoraria to, quote, edit an already prepared slideshow. Johnson & Johnson also followed me around, Mortel said. They'd show up at conferences where I was talking. After a while, they were chasing me around with money. I couldn't get away from it. I was scheduled to speak at a Scripps conference in San Diego. J&J went to the Scripps people and said they wanted to make a donation. They wanted to pay for the cost of Mortel's participation. When I learned of this, I refused to go if they were paying. Mortel's brushes with J&J in time set him to stewing more generally about the pharmaceutical industry. He'd frequently heard drug companies argue that high profitability was justified because it was a high-risk business. We spend on average $231 million and 12 years to bring a new drug to market, they would always point out, and only one in 5,000 compounds ever resulted in FDA approval. Without high returns, there would be no incentive for innovative, risky research. Without high returns, there'd be fewer drugs that save lives and reduce the ruinous cost of surgery. Although these arguments undeniably carried some weight in the medical community on Capitol Hill, Mortel by now had little patience with such talk. It would be easy to accept their arguments, he felt, if they didn't spend more on promotion than research, if they didn't pour an average 58% of their research money into, quote, me-too drugs that duplicate what's already on the market, and they didn't benefit so greatly from taxpayer-funded work of academic and federal researchers. Mortel knew... They had played key roles in developing 70 cancer drugs being marketed by private companies. The last straw for the Mayo Clinic professor came when he learned that a year's supply of levamisole in Europe, marketed as a cancer treatment, was going to average $150, one-eighth the cost of America. American consumers are supporting R&D for the world, he fumed. They're tough over there in Europe, and we're pussycats. We're the only Western nation that doesn't regulate drug prices. This is out of hand. This is nonsense. On May 19th at the San Diego Convention Center, before an audience of 5,000, Mortel devoted most of his talk to the study's final results. Then, near the end, he added two or three lines about Levamisol's cost. 
The pricing was unconscionable. We specifically promised that it would be marketed at a reasonable price. I think after 25 years of profitable marketing, they'd have made up their costs. The NCI funded by the taxpayer sponsored this study. This company got a present dumped in its lap. We gave it to them on a silver platter. And I find this article so instructive because so many of the points raised here are virtually the same today. One, Mortel says that 58% of R&D goes for Me Too drugs. Sean Mylan Cody and I found in an article called Five Years of Cancer Drug Approvals in 2015 that 60% of FDA-approved cancer drugs were Me Too drugs. They were very similar to existing drugs on the market, operated via the same mechanism of action. Mortel points out that in those years, it cost a whopping $231 million and 12 years to bring a new drug to market. We find an analysis in JAM Internal Medicine, a modern update, pegs that number something between $700 and $800 million when adjusted for inflation with lost earnings on capital. That's a paper by Mylan Cody and I. Another example, the pivotal trial that led to the use of this product, Levamisol, is quite similar to the pivotal trial of Mitostorin, which led to the use of Mitostorin for FLT3 ITDAML which was cooperative group sponsored. So again, the taxpayer is footing the bill for a registration study for the company. Next, the U.S. is paying far more in drug prices than other comparable nations. In a paper by Kevin De Jesus, Sean Milan, Cody, and I that appear in the Nature Reviews Clinical Oncology, we compare the prices in Norway to the United States and find that even though we have on average comparable per capita GDP, our nation is spending nearly double for anti-cancer drugs than they spend in Norway. And then the worst of it, the abuse of KOLs, the honoraria, the quote-unquote consulting. This was at the age in which these marketing tactics were being born. But now we routinely see oncologists who are KOLs, key opinion leaders, collecting $100,000, $200,000 in honoraria, traveling to many meetings to drug company advisory boards. In short, everything that happened to Charles Mortel, everything that frustrated him and led him to speak out on this issue still exist today, we've just perhaps only added a single zero to all of the values. Except for the R&D, of course, that's only gone up threefold. Um, what's the real takeaway message here? I think we need more Charles Mortels. This was a man who basically developed response criteria. This was a man who did so much in fundamental clinical studies. This was a man whose regimen of platinum etoposide is still widely used in neuroendocrine tumor based on the, the study that he himself did. We still cite the same Mortel paper. This was a giant in oncology. And what did he stand for? He stood for clinical trials that allowed us to confirm that what we merely hoped or hyped was actually true. He wanted robust randomized control trials. He wanted drugs to be priced fairly, and he wanted R&D outlays through federal taxpayers to mean that companies took that into account and weren't able to gouge the American consumer. How many Charles Mortels do we have today? We have a few. We have people like Ian Tannock, people like Tito Fojo, people like Vincent Rajkumar, who have taken these issues to heart, who have spoken out both about the credibility of science as well under high drug prices. We have people like Zeke Emanuel, and we have many other people whose names I can't all remember off the top of my head. We have some other people, but this is not the exemplar for the average oncologist practicing in academic medical centers. They're not going to be remembered like Charles Mortel was. Their obituary would read something like this. Dr. KOL studied treatment and consulted for drug companies. 
Dr. KOL, a cancer research at the venerable Insert Name Hospital, died on Monday at his home. He was 66 and lived in whatever town you want. Dr. KOL put his name on numerous pivotal registration studies and published many New England Journal of Medicine papers. Dr. KOL was known for his insistence on the absence of scientific rigor, championing historical controlled before and after studies or no control arm at all. Dr. KOL felt that well done studies took too much time and prevented innovative drugs from coming to market. And such premature claims allowed hope to dying patients and Dr. KOL ignored the fact that most new drugs failed to fulfill their initial promise. Dr. KOL conducted pivotal studies that led to the approval of ramucirumab and Avastin for many indications for which they have a modest PFS benefit. Dr. KOL recently kept very quiet about the high cost of cancer treatments while attending the 25th KOL Advisory Board for the year. Dr. KOL will be remembered by his colleagues for having total cowardice and staying quiet on the issues that mattered at a time where Dr. KOL's voice would have been so powerful and so meaningful had they choose to use it for the betterment of others rather than their own personal enrichment. That's the kind of obituary you're going to read today. So hats off to Charles Mortel, whose work I've long cited, and this bit of history has been such a pleasure to read more and to learn more about. And on that positive note, we're going to turn to our new segment, Question of the Week. I'm back here in Plenary Session HQ with Dr. Sven Olsen. And this is our new segment called Question of the Week. We're going to be doing this on this podcast routinely. We're going to have a question from hematology oncology, ideally a question that prepares you for the board examination. And then we're also going to do some questions with Dr. Derek Tao for the internal medicine boards examination. And we're going to do both on plenary session in a couple segments here called Question of the Week. And Dr. Sven Olsen, who's an expert in classical hematology and malignant hematology is here to take us through a couple questions from question of the week. Dr. Olson, it's a pleasure to have you here. I'm happy to be back. You know, you, I, you need like a little, little jingle for the question of the week. We have it. We have the jingle. Ian Straley and Audrey Tran made a, a, couple, a new one. Yeah, yes. some music. Okay, so I can't wait to hear it. We got new mu- music for season two. Good. Now, Dr. Olson, recently you got on my bad list, didn't you? I suppose I did. And, uh, and why is it that you got on my bad list? Well, you know, I've thought a lot about that. It's it's not been obvious to me. Uh, why don't you explain? <laughs> it's because you failed to schedule my lectures as I as I prefer them to be scheduled every year, early early and often. My three part series on cancer clinical trials. You know, a uh, as a chief fellow, you dropped the ball on that one. Oh, is that right? Okay. Well, as a uh, esteemed and mature faculty member, I would have thought maybe you would have uh, <laughs> not reacted the way I did. Not reacted in the <laughs> in the childish and and uh, well, that's that's the mistake you make. That because actually, it's it's the more esteemed and the more mature we become as faculty, the more childish we react when things don't go our way. I suppose I must accept the blame then for not uh, <laughs> knowing that important fact about yeah. academic life. Academic life, it's, it's, it's exactly that way. In the end, you will get what you get. You will get what you want. Oh, you will good. have your lectures and we will all be better for it. And well, no, I, 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 I just want, I, I want to be able to know, you know, recently I gave a lecture um, to, a, to a tough crowd. It was a group of high school students. It was that event after work where I couldn't meet you that day. Oh, yeah. And, um, and it was a group of high school students who have a lot of promise and hopefully they're going to go down the science pathway and they wanted to know what was life like, you know, in science. 
And I will report that only a couple of them fell asleep when I was talking, which is actually pretty good for me. It's good. Was this like in a high school gym or something and they were ready to like go to, you know, recess? No, it was in a community college setting and, okay. and they're doing a two week immersive. Oh, okay. But um, it, it was around mealtime. So maybe it was <laughs> the, I can blame a little bit of it on the food. Better before than after mealtime. Yeah, that's true. Um, well, this was during the meal. So they had the meal <laughs> and I kept droning on. And then, of course, a couple of them had to rest. Well, Dr. Olson, let's go to the question of the week. So you've got two questions that that you've put together for us. These are, of course, questions that are only inspired by the boards, uh, but are not the purview or property of any board's review agency. And we're going to talk through some of them. All right, hit me. All right. So I'm just going to read this off, the question stem, and I will then read you the options for the answers. And I have a little bit of data for both of these to kind of back up why the answer is correct. Okay. Let's hear what you got to say. All right. So number one, it's a 50-year-old male. He has MIPL positive, so MPL positive, essential thrombocythemia. He develops left leg pain three days after flying from Amsterdam to Portland, Oregon. Mm-hmm. In the emergency room, he has an ultrasound of his legs, and it shows a proximal left leg DVT in his femoral vein. Mm-hmm. He has labs that are drawn. His hemoglobin is 12, mm-hmm. his white blood cells 10, and his platelets are 700. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, his pl- spleen tip is palpable on exam mm-hmm. below the costal margin. Mm-hmm. And he's discharged home on therapeutic anticoagulation. So the question is, which of the following is an indication for cytoreductive therapy in mm-hmm. this patient? Mm-hmm. A, palpable splenomegaly. Mm-hmm. B, presence of the MIPL mutation. Mm-hmm. C, recent DVT. Mm-hmm. D, platelet count of over 500. Mm-hmm. Or E, the patient's age. Mm-hmm. And the patient, again, is 50. I see. That's a, that's a great question here. And and before I before I answer, I just want to point out a few things I really like about your question. One, the flight was from Amsterdam to Portland, so this patient must have flown Delta KLM. Uh, direct flight. Direct I took flight. It. it was great. And it is a great flight. I've taken it many times. In fact, I have more miles on Delta than any other airline simply <laughs> due to this flight. So that's one thing to know. And it actually runs year-round, which is the only direct nonstop flight from Portland to Europe year-round. Next thing I'd like to know is, um, it's very interesting to me, this patient has a diagnosis of ET, obviously, because that just stands out to you right on the labs and the, the spleen tip, um, but the patient has a MIPL gene mutation, and of course we know uh, that is not the most common uh, mutation found in ET. Mm-hmm. Dr. Olson, will you take us through, what are the most common mutations found in ET? Well, the most common um, would be, uh, let me call up the table, actually, that has the thing. Uh-huh. Oh. I have it in my... Uh, in a PowerPoint I gave. I see. So this is good to know. So I, uh, when I've asked you what are the common mutations, you pull up the table. On the boards, um, do they allow you to pull up your tables on the boards there? You know, tests? one day they're going to have home tests or take-home tests. You know, I think we'll you just... make a good point that um, <laughs> that uh, I think the test should be reflective of clinical practice. In clinical practice, you do have the, the ability to look up things. Yeah. Now you've, you've located the source, Dr. Olson. Yes. What are the frequency of mutations? For ET, Jack 2 V617F is still number one. About half, half or fifty to sixty percent. It has the plurality of it. Right. Okay. So it's not specific for polycythemia vera. Okay. Fair now enough. the next yep. most common is CalR. Yep. Calreticulum mutation. That's yep. about another quarter of patients. Yeah, I think that's a New England Journal paper that actually put that on the map. Okay. And lastly, MIPL is about five percent of patients. Uh huh. So I guess what I find so interesting about this. Um, 
boards review question that you have prepared is that the uh, that we already know the patient has MIPL, which usually we don't find out right away. Sometimes there's reflex testing to mm-hmm. find MIPL. So you're saying this is a person who took a long flight. They have a DVT. They have hemoglobin of 12, platelets of 700,000. They're 50. Uh, and your question is, which one of the following factors is justification for cytoreductive therapy? Mm-hmm. By that, you mean hydroxyurea, unless you're working Most for Insight. Commonly. Most unless commonly. Unless you're working for Insight. Hydroxyurea. <laughs> is that fair to say? Most commonly. Okay. Yes. And the answer is, Dr. Olson, what's the answer? The answer is the recent DVT history. And there's a specific reason why this is the case. Yeah, take us through that. Well, what you're trying to do with cytoreduction, ideally, is prevent thrombosis. That's like the biggest, you know, component of morbidity and mortality in these patients. So preventing thrombosis, um, it kind of makes sense already that a recent DVT with sort of an ongoing thrombophilic condition, you may want to cytoreduce. But this comes from, um, actually, best I can tell, a randomized control trial from 1995, New England Journal of Medicine. This was 114 patients with so-called high-risk ET. And, and all the treatment algorithms for ET and polycythemia vera, they categorize you into low-risk, high-risk. And for ET especially, there's very low-risk, low-risk, intermediate, and high. And they give you these criteria on there that stratify you into these risk categories. And it's okay. usually history of thrombosis, age over or under 60 years, and then whether you have a JAK2 mutation, plus or minus that. And so that's always been all over these guidelines, and we always talk about it in our tumor boards and didactics, but I I never actually dug down into where that came from. So this randomized trial in New England Journal, 1995, by Cordelazzo et al. Patients with high-risk ET, so they had to have one of the following, one or more of the following. Prior thrombosis, Mm -hmm. age over 60, okay, and then they were plus or minus a JAK2 mutation. Plus or minus, okay. And they randomized patients to hydrea versus placebo. Everyone was taking aspirin, 81 milligram. Okay. The results of this showed that the patients in the hydrea group had a thrombosis incidence, so a recurrent thrombosis of about 3.6%. The control group who got no hydrea got 24% of them got recurrent thrombosis. Mm. So these are all high-risk people, Mm -hmm. but this kind of is where this age and prior thrombosis came from because patients in this high-risk cohort had to have one or more of those. Mm -hmm. That's the best answer I can find for that. Now, that's been corroborated in in subsequent studies, but none of them, I think that's the first place I've seen it. So I guess this paper showed, one, that hydroxyurea can, in fact, lower the platelet count. I think the median platelet count on entry in this study is, what, just just over 700,000, says a median Mm -hmm. 788. 788,000. And I guess it shows very clearly you can lower the platelets. The platelets fell to something between 400 to 600,000. Um, and what's the target you actually shoot for in your clinic? Well, that's a good question. So, you know, interestingly, platelet count seems like you would correlate with thrombosis risk, but it doesn't. And that's never, ever been a criteria in any guideline or mentioned in any uh, article on, on justifying cytoreduction. There's the American Journal of Hematology just recently published an r- updated review by Teferi et al. Yep. In 2019. It's not on there. And in the European Leukemia Net, they have their own guidelines, and they actually cite the IPSET criteria to evaluate thrombotic risk in ET, and it's not on there either. Okay. But and I guess there's, there's one time that you will think about it, I bet. You got a patient with ET and their platelet count is really, really high. They're younger than 60 and they've never had an, a, an arterial or venous thromboembolism. So they're at low clinical risk. Mm-hmm. But their platelet count is, is getting up over a million mm-hmm. and it's getting a little bit higher and higher and higher. And then suddenly 
you start to see that they're getting prone to bleeding. Yeah. What's going on there, Dr. Olson? Well, in that case, they may have an acquired von Willebrand syndrome mm-hmm. where it's basically the platelets act as a sponge for all the von Willebrand's multimers. So they yeah. get a lowered high molecular weight uh, von Willebrand multimers and they bleed. And those people, uh, there is sort of a consensus that if they have a platelet count over a million, you check their von Willebrand's labs before just reflexively putting them on aspirin. In that case, yeah, you could justify cider reduction. Yeah, because it's the platelet count driving the acquired von Willebrand. So in mm-hmm. that case, that's another way to get there. But you're right. Strictly speaking, for the point of view of um, cytoreduction reduction to prevent subsequent thrombotic event, the grounds that get you there are being of elderly age over the age of 60. If and you consider 60 elderly. Okay. Being of an older age <laughs> over the age of 60 with a JAK2 V617F mutation. Mm-hmm. And a history of venothromboembolism. Correct. And how many so, of those did you need to enter the study? Any one? You had to have either a history of thrombosis okay. or age over 60. Yeah. And then uh, you didn't have to have a jack mutation. Gotcha, it was right. Just, it was one of the first two. Right, right, one of the first two. Okay, mm-hmm. fair enough. So the takeaway lesson here is this person bought themselves lifelong cytoreductive therapy, hopefully with hydroxyurea. Mm-hmm. I would say so. Good question. And there one other thing you found in that randomized trial, that Italian study that randomized 114 patients, which were they were randomized to take hydroxyurea or do nothing. But if they took hydroxyurea, they had a goal platelet target that they were trying to achieve. Yeah, they tried to get them below 600. And that's good to know because that's what you can shoot for based on that study. And I've seen in you know real world practice when people are on hydrea and they they do target a platelet goal. It's sort of all over the place, but I think like something below 500, 450 seems to be kind of a general gestalt, but I'm not sure that's uh, it just sort of seems like a pretty number because it's sort of within the reference range. I'm back in plenary session HQ with Audrey Tran. Audrey's a medical student here at the OHSU School of Medicine. She did her undergraduate at Wellesley College in Massachusetts and is originally from the Portland area. And she's taking a year out of her studies to do some research with us here in the Cancer Outcomes Office, because really it's just it's just a single office out here. <laughs> Audrey, thanks so much for joining us here on Plenary Session. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Listeners will know that you are at least one half of the duo that's responsible for the fine music on this podcast. Is that fair to say? That is true. I will say, though, that um, humbly, I am helping shape the music, but really Ian is the mastermind with a technical prowess. But that, that's not, It's good to be humble, but um, I appreciate the work that both of you have done on this. Thank you. And you're here for a new segment. Mm-hmm. And this segment is called Questions from a Medical Student. On season two of Plenary Session, we have promised that there are going to be several new segments. And listeners by now may have already heard another one, which is called Question of the Week. We have Question of the Week, Hematology and Hemalignancies from Dr. Sven Olson. We're going to have Question of the Week, General Medicine from Dr. Derek Tao. And another new segment is called Question from a Medical Student with Audrey Tran. So thanks for doing this segment. Thank you so much for, again, creating this opportunity. I hope you find it's a good opportunity, but um, like many questions that I'm asked, I may be unable to provide any good answer. That's a, that's a risk you run when you come here on the stage. <laughs> okay, so let's tell listeners a little bit what question from a medical student is. I guess, I, I guess we were talking recently, and um, you made the point that you know from time to time, medical students may have questions that they want to ask a faculty member. Of course, if you ask a bunch of faculty members, you're probably going to get a diversity of opinions, and you probably should do that. 
And I thought, you know, wouldn't it be nice if, you know, you were to think of the questions that you would like to ask a faculty member, and we, we took a stab at it on a plenary session, and maybe do one a week, um, to see if we can give a flavor of what are the kinds of things on the mind of medical students, and how might I try to answer that. And I want to say at the outset that I don't think I'm going to answer it the way everyone else will answer it, so well, listeners can take it for what it is. Sounds good. I will say, I think, the one of the reasons why... Um, I think you're pretty actually pretty well equipped to to answer this just because I think part of the mentoring process and I, I, I think about this often um, is kind of having this the, again this humility this idea to be like well this is my way but there's maybe a generalizable way to do some basic things but understanding that everyone has different interests and needs um, and I think your background actually in philosophy and uh-huh. <laughs> it's going to be actually very helpful because I think it allows you to step back and take a bigger scope of that generally these are some things that I think all students can need but individually mentorship is such a powerful and life-changing process um you're alluding to the question one yes I am okay mm-hmm. but I, I I thank you so much for that for that kind words I guess I'd, I'd also say that actually one of my pet peeves as a student was that there's so many things that I think students may have a question about and I think if you ask a faculty member um, they are often quick to give you an answer. But what really troubled me was when people felt like their answer was like the single right answer. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that happened a lot for me when it came to like notes on the wards where somebody was like, um, how do you write a proper soap note? And everyone has their own opinion. And I was mm-hmm. like, look, I appreciate that you have strong feelings about this, but I just want to let you know, just as a matter of fact, you know some of your colleagues have diametrically opposed views. And so mm-hmm. you guys got to exactly. get this straight before you want to mm-hmm. tell students what to do. Okay, so your question from a medical student. What's your question? So my first question is, how do I go about finding a mentor? And specifically, as a medical student, what should I be looking for? Given the context that there's not a lot of time, I think, A, to do the search, and B, to even do the research, um, given the constraints of, again, the clinical rotations. So then, in that limited resource purview, Mm -hmm. what is most important? Is it that the topic is relevant to, like, my future field of study, um, the lab culture, the availability of projects, maybe the track record of the mentor. In your opinion, what do you think matters the most? I think that's a great question. I guess maybe first let's ha- talk a little bit generally, and then maybe if you're comfortable, we can talk a little bit about specifically, you know, like what what was your background and what you're interested in doing. Sure, sure. So I guess I would say, um, and, and again, I will say, I think a lot of people are going to disagree with me on this. I hear a lot these days about the, like the different words that people are using to kind of describe these relationships. I hear mentor, I hear coach, I hear sponsor, I hear, I don't know, introducer, multiplier. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. A multiplier. I mean, somebody whose job is just to introduce them to people, just to make a connector, introducer, something like that. I mean, I, I, I lose track. I lose track, honestly, Audrey, with all these terms. And honestly, I think that uh, I don't care for these artificial differences that people have created. I guess what I would say is, um, I don't know, maybe maybe I view it a little bit differently. Um, I guess I would say that I'd like to think that I hope that um, you're, I mean, I think like it, when you're a student and you have things you want to do and things you want to explore, I hope you're able to connect with some people who can help you in that path. And I also recognize you're probably going to meet some people who just cannot help you one way or the other. And I hope you don't meet too many people who can thwart you, but I know there are a few <laughs> out there who can. And I guess what I would say is, I think the first most important thing off the bat is to think, is to ask yourself, you know, like, what do you want from somebody? Do you want someone 
who can help teach you laboratory skills and maybe get you down the road towards a publication in the laboratory? Do you want someone who can teach you um, statistical analysis skills and get you on the road towards a clinical project? Do you want someone just to be able to sit down with you and run through your list of these are all the programs I'm going to apply for in internal medicine? What do you think is good and what do you think is bad? What have you heard about it? And for me, many years ago, Dr. James Woodruff at the University of Chicago, he sat down with me and took me through that. And I really appreciated him taking like just maybe 20 minutes out of his schedule to run through that. So kind of the first question is like, what do you want out of that interaction? Um, and the kind of person you're going to seek out for each of these things is probably going to be a little bit different. Then I think the second thing I would say, which is probably equally important as what you want out of it, I think, I hate to say it, but I think it really is, it's a personality thing. Uh, it has to do with the person, and do you find that this is somebody that you can actually meet and talk to and feel comfortable with or not? Is this a friendly person or a not friendly person? And I think one of the mistakes people might make often is perhaps only natural that students might want to work with the person with the biggest name or the most eminence from sort of a domain of research. But that my person might essentially be unavailable, might be someone who just gallivants around the world and travels and gives lectures. They might not be someone you can really speak honestly with. I mean, to be perfectly honest with you, I, I have to think back now in retrospect of all of the people whose brain I picked over all these years. And I would say that there's, you know, maybe even 50% of people I talked to who were my faculty members who I never was comfortable enough to kind of just speak frankly with. And the people who I felt sort of a, a deep connection with who I'm still deeply connected with all these years later, like Adam Sifu, with whom I wrote the book, like Tito Fo, who was my program director. These were people with whom I felt I could be, you know, really fully honest with about, you know, what I was thinking. And I think that helps. Like, it's nice to be able to talk to somebody you feel like you can be fully honest with. So I guess the first thing I would say is, you know, you got to think about what you actually want to accomplish from, from that project. Then I think, let's say, let's just focus on the subset of mentorship questions that have to do with a research project, because I know there's a lot of other things from life advice to where you should apply to all these things. I think those kinds of questions, the other kinds of questions, there's probably more people whose brain you can pick. It doesn't hurt you to run it by several people. You're nodding your head. Good. <laughs> um, but I think for the research thing, I think maybe there's a couple other things you might want to look for. I think you, the first thing is you want to look for somebody with whom I think you can get along with and who has time and will actually be able to participate in the project. I think a lot of people will try to farm it out to their postdoc or something like that, which might be fine, but it depends on the personality and kind of ability of that postdoc to help you with the project. Um, I think when you're thinking about the project, my bias is, of course, I think that you do want to go with somebody who, all else being equal, actually has been able to publish articles or finish posters. I think there are a lot of people, even at the faculty level, who may not have ever learned that skill. And it, I don't know if it's actually like a technical skill or sort of a psychological skill, which is going the final mile. Lots of people start research projects. Lots of people um, work through research projects. Lots of people troubleshoot research projects. There are few people who are good at getting the research project to the finish line, which is actually disseminating and publishing and talking about what you find and, and being able to hang your hat on something. And I think when I see people choose research mentors who they themselves have a very poor publication track record, part of me thinks that that is not a wise choice because this person probably is proving that they're unable to get themselves to a successful mm -hmm. publication. Sure. Boy, it will be hard for them to get you to a successful publication or poster. Mm -hmm. um, so I think you do want somebody with a bit of a track record. And then I think you do need to watch out for people who 
Um, I would say there's certain red flag behaviors that strike me uh, as terms of mentors who I think to avoid in the research domain. What do, what do those look like? I think they look like people who publish a lot of articles and when you read the article, it says in the acknowledgement, I like to thank so-and-so and so-and-so who are usually students who are my research assistants who helped on earlier work in this project. What kind of person is getting this student to help on this project and, and they're not an author? Well, something, yeah. Something's fishy. Interesting. Something's fishy. I'm going to play your music that you made called Something's Fishy. That's <laughs> fishy. <laughs> Okay, we're back. That's a something's fishy music. Um, so, I mean, I do think that that's kind of a worrisome sign. I also think one of the things that worry me a little bit is if I see very, very esteemed senior authors like habitually being the first author on their own papers. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't know. After a few years, like, what do you what do you want to be first author for? Do you want to hang it up on your refrigerator <laughs> and get a sticker on it too? I mean, grow up. Okay, who cares? Mm-hmm. Nobody cares. I mean, is the is the work sound and and is the point true? Um, okay, so those are some preliminary thoughts. Uh, I just want to add, there's an interesting article. Um, so I guess we've been talking about the side of, of what should a mentee look for in a mentor. Um, okay, so this is an article written by uh, Vineet Chopra and Sanjay Saint called What Mentors Wish Their Mentees Knew. And this came out in the Harvard Business Review. And I think this is written from the point of view of two people who I think have a reputation of being able to successfully mentor trainees. And they, they say that this is what they wish um, you know, the trainee knew. And I think their first point, and the first point I'm telling you is, is similar, which is clarify what you need. I need a mentor, but what specifically do you need? Physician scientists may need more than somebody who just need advice on negotiating a job or speaking at a national meeting. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And I guess if you have a specific advice question, like what does it take to get on the stage at ASH and give a talk, I think you should ask someone who's done that, but you should also talk to somebody who gives a lot of talks. Um, because I think that you know, I mean, especially, especially on the question of like what it's like to give a talk. I think that people feel as if they've settled into how they give lectures. And I, I remember believing that I'd settled into how I give a lecture. But then I think it's only after you give like 200 lectures do you actually feel like, okay, now I actually know what it's like to give a lecture and it's much more natural than, mm-hmm. and it's not something you have to think about too much. The next thing is choosing wisely. Um, they say this, quote, like selecting a partner for marriage, your choice of mentor affects 95% of your success and happiness. That's a big wow. bowl. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> Putting those up together. Wow, that yeah, is. Yeah, that's quite a conflation. I think that's mm-hmm. a, that's, that's a, it's a, I, I wouldn't okay. put it, it's not the same level of commitment. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing is, if you were to have two mentors, I don't think anyone will be uh, deeply <laughs> offended. Uh, but I yeah. can imagine, I can't, I can only imagine how their analogy would go there. Sure. But, um, uh, so I think that that's important to know that it's okay to switch a mentor. It's okay to quit. Um, maybe that's this, these are things I'm adding, but they say that, you know, find the, choose wisely. I, I'd say it's, it's okay to quit, and it's okay to actually have a couple mentors because, you, yeah. you know, one person can't do it all. One thing I, I will say about that is, uh, especially for medical students, knowing that their professor's time is just so precious, it, it always does feel weird and strange in that, if you will put, yeah, the, the courtship phase, I suppose, if you are trying to find mm-hmm. a project mm-hmm. and you know, it sounds promising, but then something about the schedule or, or the logistics just don't work out, or it might not be actually what you had signed up for or what you thought. And it, it is, I know that it may not mean too much to a professor. I try to look from their perspective and be like, okay, well, 
if someone can't do it, it's better that they just say it up front. Mm-hmm. But it does feel, I think, there, there's a little bit of tension on our side just because we don't want to seem flaky or we don't want to seem that right. we're not committed. But I think there is a difference, right, between um, honestly uh, reviewing and, like, assessing what, again, like, clarifying, is this going to get me what I need mm-hmm. um, from this project and from this mentor? And if not, and there's just not something that I can really pull from this respectfully saying I have decided to do something else but Mm -hmm. thank you very much for your time and energy you know just it was great to like know about this project but I've decided to go a different direction yeah I think that's well stated I mean you should never feel bad about that that's that's the way the world works and that's that's right and I think any mentor who's like not uh perhaps a sociopath, uh, would accept that as, <laughs> as a legitimate sort okay. of uh, thing to say. And then additionally, let's say you even start the project and you're a month in and then you realize that it's mm-hmm. not what you had wanted to do. I think it's much better to just say month in, I don't want to do this. And look, maybe you want to find somebody else to work on that. Um, that's not right. It's not the right fit for me. Rather than, I think as some people might be tempted to do, is just to kind of go radio silent and then right. a year later when the professor remembers mm-hmm. that they even thought that idea in the first place, they'll, you know, there'll be some a little bit I don't know, somebody might be a little bit more put out over that. Right, sure. Um, okay, the next thing they say, under-promise and over-deliver. Okay, well, of hmm. course, who doesn't want to do that? Um, <laughs> yeah, that's what, that's what we, all, we all are trying <laughs> yeah. to do that. Okay, I, I guess that's fair enough. Uh, mind the mentor's time. Good mentors are successful for a reason. They manage their time wisely, often doing multiple things at a given time in order to ensure success. Okay, I mean, I guess I'm sympathetic to this in the sense that, um, oh, well, then they actually give something specific, which I agree with them. Importantly, avoid long, winding emails with little in the form of an answerable question. Rather, frame questions so that they can be answered with yes or no answers while reserving longer concerns for face-to-face meetings. Quote, your mentor's time is a precious commodity and thinking about how best to use it both in their physical presence and outside of it is important for success, end quote. I guess I would say I kind of partly agree there, but I think also um, I kind of partly disagree. I guess I would say this is a true about emails, whether you send it to a mentor or a friend or anybody in your life. Mm-hmm. I mean, the age of writing somebody a lovely, thoughtful letter I think, and there might still be a role for that somewhere in life, uh, but it's largely dead in the kind of the work price relationship. I think all of us like letters that are short and to the point. And I mean, every time I see an email that goes on for four paragraphs, I'm like, oh boy, (laughs) oh boy, what are they asking? I zoom to the end and it's like, oh, can you give a lecture on this date at this time at this place? I was like, just say that. And the answer is maybe, maybe not, depending on my schedule, you know. it's it's always good to just say, hey, three questions for you. One, this, two, this, three, this. And I can explain more. I'm happy to explain more by email, but I can also talk to you about it if you want. Or you can call me and, you know, have a phone call or something. Mm-hmm. But then the thing I, I also don't, uh, the reason I don't like it a little bit, the thing I, I want to push back on is, I don't know, it, it makes it seem like this mentor is somebody who's like sitting on a pedestal. They're so mm-hmm. successful. They're so important. They can't, mm-hmm. can't, they can't yeah. waste the genius's <laughs> time. Oh, come on. Give me a break. I mean, okay. Waste their time. They work mm-hmm. at a university. They get paid to teach. Mm-hmm. They should take it seriously and they should yeah. be willing to waste some time. And if you want to be somebody who every minute of your time is documented and is maximally optimized, then you should be president of the United States. But if you want to be a professor <laughs> at a university, your time will not be optimized that way. And you have to be willing to give some time to other people that may not ever benefit you in the future. And you know what? When someday when they bury you, which they will eventually, no one will care (laughs) twice about all those papers you thought were so important. Mm -hmm. They will just remember those moments that you sat with them for 20 extra minutes and talked to them about, you know, whether or not they should move out east because they have a significant other that Mm -hmm. lives there and they want to go residency there. Or should they stay here because they're close to the family? Those kinds of like really human interactions you Mm -hmm. have with people, they're going to appreciate that you spent time out of your schedule to talk 
talk to them about that. So I think, I, I don't know, I, I wouldn't feel too bad about wasting the mentor's time. Um, their next one, beware of pitfalls. Mentorship malpractice can occur, and that's, that's of course, true. Um, oh, and then the last one, which I also have mixed feelings about, which is called be engaged and be energizing. The best mentees are fun to work with. They're energy donors, not energy recipients. Hmm. Yeah, it's like getting yeah. young blood. You just want to get that donor, not the recipient. <laughs> they come to work with enthusiasm, excitement, and eagerness to move projects forward. I would say, yeah, but you don't have to be too, I mean, I mean within normal mm-hmm. limits, it's okay to be a normal person with normal amounts of enthusiasm. Um, but but the flip side is that you know shouldn't have to work on a project that you think is boring and unimportant. And I guess I would say that, I don't know, having worked with a lot of people over the years, what have I learned? I guess I've learned, one, that it's good to have a bunch of random ideas because not all of them will be completed by everybody. Some ideas will just be started and may never see the light of day. Um, Two, it's good to try to meet with people with some frequency because that keeps things moving forward so that you can see faces and remind yourself why you care about this or why not. I think I always try to tell people I work with about any lecture I'm giving in the area or something. Mm-hmm. You're nodding because I think you've been to yes, a couple of I mean, them. Yeah. And, and, and it's helpful, I think, actually, that even when you send an email, I think kind of going back actually to the whole be mindful of the person's time, sometimes it's not even just time. It's just that the mentor is thinking and being thoughtful of, of the students. It, even just having that one reminder mm-hmm. coming from you mm-hmm. or coming from your mentor it just matters a lot because it it's a small thing but it's saying oh signaling hey i i think you'd be interested and just just as a reminder i know that we are working on this thing together this could be of interest yeah i think i try to um i hope like when we have guest speakers and stuff that are on topics that might interest you mm-hmm. i i i ask Kia, kiana to help yeah. me email, email <laughs> yeah. you and, and 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 let everyone know that mm-hmm. like there might be a good talk um and I think that that's like that is good. I mean, because you want to like have some FaceTime and see somebody, and also like if you, if I'm aware of something, I'll try to like let people who are working with me know about it. Um, and then the other thing I've learned is that there. I mean, I guess I would say that I'm always surprised by like the people who are go way above and beyond the call of duty, and the people for whom it doesn't strike a chord, and they maybe don't take a project anywhere. It's like there's nothing I've ever learned about meeting somebody or energy or anything. And nothing mm-hmm. I've never figured out. There's nothing that predicts for that. I think it's just sure. something that happens after the fact. Mm-hmm. Okay, now let's maybe talk a little about about your specific situation if you want to. Okay. Uh, sure. So after you did college, you did research in mm-hmm. a very prestigious laboratory. Mm-hmm. Is that right? That's correct. Well, I mean, it was, I feel like when you went to Wellesley College, I actually did my thesis um, in the laboratory of Chad Cowan at the Harvard Stem Cell Institute. Mm. And I was loving, I loved stem cell research. And I kind of had done um, a previous summer internship at Boston Children's Hospital in the core facility with Torsten Slager. Um, kind of also jointly with like George Daly, uh, Dr. George Daly. The dean. The now dean. dean. Mm-hmm. Not then dean. Yes. Then so dean was uh, Jeff Flyer. Yes, yes. Uh, yeah. So it was kind of this interesting situation because um, I was in the core facility, but we also went to these lab meetings, um, at the daily lab meetings. And so we had this kind of like little, little nook of kind of core facility researchers who also got exposed to this entire hematology oncology mm-hmm. uh, milieu. And it was just kind of this very fascinating thing where especially coming from uh, Harvard Stem Cell Institute, which is in Cambridge, and then working in Longwood, just understanding that every lab is interconnected. It's a pretty small uh, field or community, but it's, it has so many like vibrant and uh, very dynamic. passionate, mm-hmm. dynamic researchers. And mm-hmm. just understanding that you can't just be in your own little lab. Mm-hmm. 
if you want to make a difference, or if you want to like really understand what's going on. And so I think from the get go, it was just, okay, everything is happening all at once. And this is a lab specific goal. This is a very specific dynamic, or this is a very specific goal of this core facility versus this daily lab versus um, the Cowan lab and stuff like that. And it's very fascinating to kind of be part of this very dynamic um, community, I guess. It's kind of like being, you're, you're like in the honors college at a big university. Like you have a smaller group of people that you connect with and also a larger group that you can expose mm-hmm. to broader ideas. Yeah, exactly. And and you worked in this laboratory for a couple of years before you went to medical school. Is that fair to say? That's correct. Mm-hmm. And then you came to medical school. And, and then the other thing about you is you have a background in music. And, and you have a lot of, obviously, you you and Ian Straley are the makers of the music on this podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have a background in music. So that's another one of your interests. Sure. You also have a background in policy. And that's an interest of yours. And so mm-hmm. you're very active on some of the groups here. Mm-hmm. So you have diverse interests from, I think, hardcore biology mm-hmm. to music and everything in between yes it's it's a it's a lot of i'm still trying to make sense of exactly how i i try to put these into boxes because sometimes it shifts um just but ultimately i think what's been very fascinating to me there's two two main things where i think i was kind of to me stem cell biology and biochemistry was the kind of sweet spot where i could keep asking like but why but why but why it's because at the end of the day it was these like molecular interactions. But it was also the point where I was actually, this knowledge could actually help somebody someday, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So it's like, okay, if I know that imatinib, for example, mm-hmm. you know, has this particular pocket mm-hmm. that it can selectively mm-hmm. um, you know, inhibit these tyrosine kinases, that is really cool that I know this detail and why it's so specific and why, it, and then that it can translate and actually help and cure you know, um, mm-hmm. the leukemia. Um, ultimately that, that's kind of one facet where just knowledge, applied knowledge is so powerful. I think that's really cool. And then the other bucket I think is just this message, this idea of communication Mm -hmm. through all forms. Mm -hmm. And I think for me, I grew up with, um, a background in classical music. Um, and I found myself really drawn to the creative expression parts of it, not just expression of like a piece that someone wrote 400 years ago, but more something that I wanted to say or something that was something that was kind of coming from me to express and say like, oh, this is how I feel. And especially, I would say that my genre is more songwriting mm. and acoustic uh, music making, um, which is a little bit different because you're using words and setting it to music to convey a message. So to me, that communication also is in the advocacy field as well. Again, like how do you make people listen? How do you make people feel inspired to 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 join in on different conversations. Cause that for me is like the, the very, very base of what makes me excited and interesting about things is that someone could inspire me to do the work and how do I get other people to kind of join in as well. Okay. I don't know if that's a, no, that's lots great. Lots of things. That's fantastic. No, well, see, that's the other thing. I think that's good. I think it, it, I think that's a good, um, I think that's good. And I think it's really great that listeners will get a sense that, you know, I think you're in this part of medical school where opportunity and possibility is still very, very broad Mm -hmm. and your interests are very, very broad. I think it's great that listeners get a sense that you have a very broad range of interests. And we're going to see more of that on future episodes of Questions from a Medical Student. Thank you, Audrey, for coming on this week's episode. Thank you for having me.
I'm back in Plenary Session HQ with Dr. Adam Obley. Dr. Obley should need no introduction. He is now Associate Professor of Medicine. Congratulations. I saw you just got promoted, Adam. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. It's much overdue. Should have done it years ago. He is also a frequent guest of this podcast. He appeared on Episode 1, which is an episode I tell listeners not to listen to because we're still practicing. He's also a guest on other episodes where he did a marvelous job talking about, I think, many different topics over, over the course of the last year. I think you've been on, this is your fourth time on the podcast. That's right. That right. I'm still waiting on my four-timers jacket. The four-timers jacket. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a green uh, a blazer that we, that we anoint all the winners, just like the master's jacket. Exactly. <laughs> well, it's good to have you here. So you're here to talk about cancer screening, and in part because, boy, you know, there's no place worse to talk about cancer screening than with a bunch of physicians on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> That's the worst place to talk about it. It's the worst place to talk about pretty much anything. It's the worst place to talk about, yes, pretty much anything. But especially cancer screening. I think it's particularly frustrating because there are just some very simple basics, fundamentals that I don't think people get. Or, and, and it shocks me that they've gotten very far without getting the simple thing. I'll just give you one example. Somebody said in this argument about lung cancer screening I was having that the five-year survival before screening was actually quite poor. And the five-year survival among people who are screened is much better. It's at least fourfold higher. Ergo, screening saves lives. You're nodding. Yes, so you, that embraces one of the sort of classic biases that we think about in screening trials, um, this idea of lead time bias. Yes. Um, and the idea that um, by identifying someone as having a cancer before it would be clinically identified, that their survival from that cancer appears to increase, mm -hmm. even though it really has done nothing to affect the natural history of the cancer that they have. Right. If you all you did was tell somebody they had cancer earlier, you'll improve five-year survival, but you won't make them better off. Exactly. That's, that's exactly why survival analyses and screening trials are so fraught. Mm. Well, let's get into this. Let's get into this. Let's start by, you know, I, I, I was going to go on some rant here and, and my blood pressure was very high. And I said, no, I won't do that. I'm going to get Adam Obley here because you are good at taking people through the basics. This is Screening 101. This is lecture. It's going to be called Screening 101. This is what you need to know about cancer screening, you know, that you probably should have learned years ago, especially if you want to talk about it. Okay, let's start there. Where, where do we dive in? What do we need to know about screening? What, what is screening? I guess, first of all, let me ask you this. Screening, it's not prevention. It's early detection. Is that right? That's correct. In most cases. Um, there are some examples where um, screening and prevention probably blur. Mm. Um, that's polypectomy. Not, polypectomy is a good example. Mm, yeah. um, treating certain um, precancerous lesions of the cervix, mm -hmm. for instance, may also be preventive. But um, the first thing I would say is that I come at this not from the perspective of an oncologist, but from the perspective of a general internist mm -hmm. um, who works with our residents in clinic and who has these discussions about the merits of screening with patients and our residents as well as they're trying to counsel patients. So on Twitter, um, they would say that you lack expertise. Uh, that could be that could <laughs> be one view of it, yes. No, but I think that's an incorrect view. You have a lot of expertise in population sciences and thinking about about screening tests. Just because somebody tears the tickets in the movie theater doesn't mean they know what movies to produce. Isn't that fair to say? So, so some of these technical experts are probably really misunderstand what it means to have expertise on screening. I think that's a fair point. Okay, so you teach the residents this. And if anybody, primary care physicians are on the front lines. Absolutely. You're the ones who decide who gets screened and how often. I say you decide, but of course we'll talk about shared decision making later. Great. So yeah, I think it's important. The, the basic principle of screening means that you're taking a healthy population, a group of people who have no symptoms of the disease that you're screening for, um, and 
by definition, in comparison to a population of people presenting with, say, a symptom of the disease, if we're talking about colorectal cancer, it might be someone presenting with rectal bleeding and weight mm -hmm. loss yeah. um, or rectal bleeding and, you know, a change in bowel habits. Mm -hmm. um, in that population, it's much more likely that a person who has symptoms, when you go down the diagnostic pathway, will turn out to have a cancer. Mm -hmm. In the healthy population that we're screening, um, the, the rate of cancer is actually quite low. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And the consequence of that is that even with very good tests, mm -hmm. um, it means that because of the low prevalence um, in our asymptomatic screening population, um, much of the testing will turn out to be inaccurate. Mm, I see. This is a great point about all tests. Even tests with good sensitivity and specificity are only as good as pretest probability. And what you're saying is pretest probability is low in people who are average, healthy people. That's exactly right. And and then the other point you're making that's wonderful is we are not going to be talking about how do you work up people with complaints. Having complaints and the workups that's come from that, that is a different sort of philosophical branch of medicine. And that's something there's much less dispute about. About. Absolutely. Okay. All right. So that's a great point. Okay. So we're talking about healthy people. There's a low pretest probability. And, and then if somebody were to say like, oh, but I have a family history of breast cancer, isn't my pretest probability high? What would you say there? Yeah, I would say in certain cases, we have a good understanding of what um, various risk factors like family history contribute to the risk. Mm -hmm. um, and in some instances, instances, it may alter our belief about when it's appropriate to begin screening. Okay. Um, However, um, in some cases, those risks are marginal at best. Yes, right. Um, and the background, the risk may not be that much different than the background risk in the population. Right. Um, so it really comes down to a more refined understanding of what those risks are. Right. Well put. Well put. Okay. So that's the population we're going after. What's the next bit about screening? So I think the next thing that you have to understand about screening is that in order for a screening test to be valuable, it has to be a condition which, when detected before someone presents with symptoms, has an associated treatment that would then alter the natural course of that disease. Mm -hmm. So that is to say that if we identify someone with an early stage um, precancerous uh, pre polyp um, through colorectal cancer screening, that by treating that somehow, we alter the course of the um, condition for that patient. And that's an excellent point. So one of the preconditions of cancer screening is that, I, I, I guess, you, one, you have to accurately find the, the entity you care about or the pre-entity you care about. And two, you have to be able to do something, to interdict, to intercept it, that will alter what will happen later. Correct. Okay, and then and then I'll add one more thing there. And, and you have to also have a condition where had you found it later, are you gonna say this part? No, go ahead. Okay. So you also have to have a, as a sort of a precondition that had you found it later, you would not be able to dramatically improve the outcome. Right. So let's just use the testicle cancer example. Mm -hmm. We ha now have a USPSTF grade D rating for testicle cancer. And that's not because, okay, of course, if you find a lump in your testicle, there is some probability that it's a testicle cancer. It could also be something else. Right. So there's some false positives, false negatives there. Unfortunately, the only way to work that up is orchiectomy. There's not a needle biopsy as a recommended approach to that problem. So you're going to lose that testicle. But we also know the reason testicle cancer screening really fails is that if you had stage four testicle cancer with BEP and some other novel regimens, we have cure rates that near 100% cure rates, 99% exactly. cure rates, 97% cure rates. So you don't have that precondition that things are worse if it was detected at a later stage, and it's better if it's detected earlier. Right. That's exactly right. Okay. So the second, so the prerequisite of screening here you're articulating is you have to be able to do something about it when you find it that will change the natural history. Right. Okay. 
And then I think the, the third key principle that I would raise, and this sort of goes back to the idea that we're working with an asymptomatic population, that many of the results we have will turn out to be false positives. Yes. And that begins a diagnostic odyssey for patients, which in many cases may entail a great deal of harm. Yes. Um, and we can talk more about that. I think there's some really wonderful examples, particularly with lung cancer screening, um, that sort of emphasize the, the tenuous balance between the benefits and harms of lung cancer screening. Now, that said, uh, with any screening test, um, even once we've met those first two criteria, um, we still have to weigh the benefits and harms because we are going to be identifying a lot of false positives because we're starting those diagnostic odysseys because those diagnostic odysseys are often not cheap. Um, it's often a very fine balance between the benefits and harms um, when you're deciding whether or not to screen an asymptomatic population. That's a great point. And I love this phrase, diagnostic odyssey. I've never heard that. So that's a good one. And I think because you're right, it really is an odyssey. Let's say you see somebody, um, you know, heavy smoker who meets USPSTF guidelines, and let's say they get a non-contrast, low-dose hel helical CT. Let's say you find a nodule. Next thing you know, you might be subjecting them to a series, a battery of subsequent scans. Maybe that's not enough. Maybe you send them down for, for EBUS and washings. Maybe that's not enough. Maybe you send them for transbronchial biopsy. Maybe that's not enough. You send them for CT-guided biopsy. Maybe one in a hundred of those people, one in a thousand, you drop along. Right. Maybe, maybe you know, all sorts of things happen from that knowledge. Mm -hmm. Knowledge is, uh, you know, people always say that knowledge is always good for you, but that's not <laughs> always the case in the human body. Knowledge is a double-edged sword. That's exactly right. And at least in one center's example, and sort of following up on the NLST, the lung cancer trial, um, I think this was the Pittsburgh experience. They found that for uh, out of every... Um, for every two thoracotomies that they ended up pursuing yeah. um, that resulted in a cancer diagnosis, one thoracotomy provided a benign diagnosis. And mm. that is an extraordinarily invasive, risky procedure um, for that sort of diagnostic yield. A thoracotomy, and you're saying about 50% of the time, it turned out it was a benign thoracotomy. Uh, a benign diagnosis. About a third of the time. A third of the time. A third of the time. Well, that's uh, that's a kind of that's a big it's a big cut, right? To and of find course, nothing. The problem much. is, is that the person who receives that benign diagnosis feels grateful. Feels very grateful. Yes, because they didn't know that in the alternate universe without screening, it's not that they would have had lung cancer. That's what they're thinking. But in the alternate universe, they would actually never have had to have a surgery. Right. All right. That's the real counterfactual. Okay, that's a great point. Okay, so so these are the principles. The pretest probability is low. Um, for some reason in America, I mean, I, I would say it's an American obsession, but maybe it's a Western European and American obsession that screening was always about everybody. We never like pursued initially screening in high risk groups and then later extrapolated it uh -huh. to lower risk groups. We always wanted to just bite the whole apple in one bite. We wanted one size fits all, all risk screening tests, mammograms for anyone over a certain age. You know, it's kind of interesting. It's just this mentality of, you know, we wanted to just get everybody. But it, all that did is really kind of lower our pretest right. probability. I hadn't thought about it. It's sort of a very democratic approach, isn't it? It's a very, and that's, uh, that's not typical for, I think, this nation. <laughs> I mean, I, I think that, you know, you know, that's not, and it's actually a little bit different than how we approach something like statins, for instance, right. where we tried to bite at it a little bit incrementally. First, yes. MI and high risk cholesterol. Next, then just uh, and then just ACS and high cholesterol. Then you know just uh, secondary prevention here and there, and then finally primary prevention. I think it's probably because the the story that we tell related to screening is um, a very compelling one in the sense that people believe that message of prevention, mm, okay. um, even if it's inappropriately applied to, to most screening tests. Yeah. Okay. All right. It's, so it strikes someone as preventive medicine. Of course. It feels like, I mean, we're all taught an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure and the right. psychology to believe in screening is deep and strong. That's right. Okay. So what, what's next? What's the next thing we need to know about screening? 
So the next thing to know about screening is that there are a lot of ways that screening studies can misrepresent the real benefits of screening mm. or whether there are any benefits at all to screening. Um, so probably the first thing to know is there's a bias that an epidemiologist refer to as the healthy volunteer bias, mm -hmm. which essentially means that in people who elect to be screened represent a completely different population um, than people who opt not to be screened. And it's not necessarily that the screening means that they're just less likely to die from the cancer they're being screened for. A healthy volunteer will also be less likely to die from heart disease, mm -hmm. will be less likely to die from any number of causes when compared to someone who opts not to screen. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the first problems that we face in trying to understand what the benefits of screening are. So if I look at 100 people who underwent screening and compare them to 100 people who chose not to undergo screening, and it turns out the 100 that underwent screening did really, really well, I can't attribute all of that to the screening. There's also Correct. a struggle. Yeah. And, and then the other thing I think is, let's talk about, I mean, lung cancer screening. I think in lung cancer screening, that may be present even more than anything else I know, because there are many people, whether we like it or not, who are high risk of lung cancer, heavy smokers, mm -hmm. continuing to smoke, who have a very nihilistic view of screening, and they may have other health behaviors, and they may choose not to be screened. Sure. And there may be another group of people who care much more about certain things over other things and they may have quit smoking and they may be really motivated to be screened along with being motivated to do a whole bunch of other things right okay okay so that's another thing so this is a this is one of the classic ways in which observational data will mislead us in screening yes that's exactly right and we already alluded to one of the other ways this idea of lead time bias mm -hmm. um, the idea that people perceive longer survival when a cancer is detected um, during an asymptomatic screening exam compared to when it's detected clinically. What if I were to tell you right now today that you will someday have prostate cancer? Your five-year survival will be really good. And I'm probably right. You, you probably are. Yeah. Uh, on both accounts. Yeah, on I both mean, accounts. The You're likelihood gonna... that, you know, a person living to, uh, you know, my actuarially um, suggested yeah. age at mm -hmm. this point will develop prostate cancer at some point is quite high. I am telling you right now you have prostate cancer, and I, w I want you to thank me for giving you these years back to your life and saving. In fact, we could just say I saved your life. We could say that. We could say that. And ideally I also, on Twitter. Ideally on Twitter. Yeah, and I think you should say that on Twitter. And I think um, it also, I just want people to know, this is just how good a doctor I am. <laughs> <laughs> this is a life-saving podcast. It's a life-saving podcast. Okay. But this is a classic lead time bias because we know from autopsy studies that say, I mean, I've heard the numbers quoted as it's almost exactly proportionate to your a your age. So that 90% of 90-year-olds, 80% of 80-year-olds, 70% of 70-year-olds will have prostate cancer detectable upon autopsy. Um, so that that's a very high percent of people. So in this is prostate cancer that most men will die with it than die of it or from it. Correct. And that sort of introduces a, a related concept, which is overdiagnosis. Mm. Um, and that's the identification of cancers that would ultimately never harm a patient. Mm. Um, and when we overdiagnose people, we tend, although not always, but we tend to overtreat them as well. Hmm. Um, and all of the harms that go along with the diagnostic odyssey and the overtreatment of these overdiagnosed cancers is very worrisome. And I think we have all sorts of examples in our day-to-day -day clinical practice. You know, I remember attending a tumor board as a resident where an 
you know, 90-year-old woman with NYHA class 3 heart failure mm-hmm. had undergone a screening mammography and mm-hmm. was identified as having breast cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, this was someone who their prognosis from their heart failure alone was quite poor. Mm-hmm. Um, so the idea that they were continuing screening at age 90 and someone with those sort of comorbidities was a, a bit appalling. And they found DCIS, you're saying? I, I don't recall the exact tumor characteristics. Uh, but, but, it could, but it could have been DCIS. It, it, it could very well could have been. been. That's and exactly then, right. And then the, the right answer... The board's answer is bilateral mastectomy and five years of tamoxifen. Isn't that right, Dr. Obley? Isn't that right? That's certainly what I would recommend, yes. No, I think, yeah. I think we're just kidding, of course, listeners. Please don't don't ever do that. I think Dr. <laughs> Obley's point is, of course, that it is, it is crazy, crazy. I mean, it's not just crazy like you need to read books to be crazy to do this. It's crazy like you need to have just very basic common sense to know that that's not something you should be doing. You shouldn't be screening this patient who has a... Uh, very short life expectancy with a screening test that will almost surely lead to the detection of something that will be acted upon that will not benefit this right. person. And, and I think that's probably another important point that we should have made earlier, which is that the benefits of screening at a population level really accrue only over a long period of time. That's a good point, too. And then the other thing I want to point out is there's a great paper in JAM, I believe, 2010, which was the rate of PSA mammograms among people who already have a metastatic cancer diagnosis, and it found non-trivial levels of being PSA screened when you have metastatic lung cancer. (laughs) That's right. And and I remember, without going into too many details, and I'm just thinking that now I'm going to disguise this, but I remember I had a patient once with a highly lethal stage 4 cancer who, in between visits, came back to me and handed me their colonoscopy screening report. And I said, who on earth... (laughs) <laughs> Who on earth got this? Why did you do this? You just drank go lightly and suffered at least one night of your life, and it will n- absolutely had no probability of changing your outcome. Yep. As I sort of jokingly say to the residents, in fact, I said it today in noon conference, if you have reached the age and the medical condition in which you're no longer buying green bananas, you probably should not be undergoing cancer screening. Wow. That is, I mean, that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a clear way to put it, which is if competing risk is high, it's, it's unlikely to give you benefit. Okay, I guess the other thing about overdiagnosis, I'll say, uh, I was reading something online, and they were saying that um, overdiagnosis is a myth. It's not true. It doesn't happen. What do you say to these people? And then somebody said it was a. It's been created by the tobacco industry. <laughs> Adam Mobley, so, are you? Are, do you work for Big Tobacco, Adam Mobley? I I do not. You do um, not. Happily, yeah. I do not. What about um, Jewel? <laughs> no, I don't. You don't vape? I absolutely not. I find that hard to yeah. believe. Although, interestingly, there is a nice study in JAMA IM. It looks like the French have um, tried to understand what the effects are um, of vaping on um, discontinuation of cigarette smoking. Uh-huh. And what did they um, find? And I think it was sort of an interesting conclusion. This is by no means definitive and totally parenthetic to our other discussion. But um, for people who are smoking and who switch to vaping, it may increase their rate of discontinuation or abstinence from, mm-hmm. from cigarette smoking. However, for people who start vaping, it probably increases the likelihood that they will eventually smoke cigarettes. Mm. So it does seem like there's probably some trade-off here. Um, we certainly need more data to, to better understand it from a public health standpoint. Be careful about vaping. You might find yourself like Dr. Scott Gottlieb stepping down for family reasons <laughs> if you keep talking about vaping. Okay so, um, okay, so what else do I need to know about screening? There's also a point to be made that much of the overdiagnosis that happens in some cases in the United States isn't intentional. Um, and some of this classic work was done by Gil Welch and trying to understand the, um, the effects of 
the increased use of um, cross-sectional imaging on the overdiagnosis of thyroid cancer. Mm -hmm. um, so now modern CTs of the chest often capture sections of the thyroid and identify a lot of thyroid nodules that way. And that leads to a lot of, uh, what did you call it, cascade? No, it's Yeah, not... diagnostic cascade or diagnostic odyssey. Odyssey. Um, in which people better. are then identified as having very indolent forms of thyroid cancer. The vast majority of thyroid cancers are, are indolent ones. And you know, just like the odyssey, in order to resist the temptation of future diagnostic tests, much like Homer, you have to lash yourself to the hull of the ship. <laughs> the is that, yeah, yes, should you not? Mostly. It's actually a much more apt analogy. Right. Yeah, the siren call will beckon you, and you will be tempted, and it will be irresistible. But that is something that also gets underappreciated, but is worth stressing, which is that it is incredibly tempting. I mean, it, I, I can't, I mean, it even takes a, such like a heroic or brave physician to kind of say, we're going to stop working this up now. We don't need to work it up. A lot of people cannot break that. The report said, may consider, you may consider this to further exactly. work up this lesion. They're going to do it. Right. When the radiology report suggests it, it very often is the case that, that the patient will be concerned if you don't order the study. Yeah. It requires a great deal of explanation. Uh, to the broader point about people who don't believe in um, in this phenomenon of overdiagnosis, I yes. think there there is a, a, a philosophical debate there about how exactly to define overdiagnosis, and I acknowledge that it's hard. Um, I think I would point to probably the best summarized evidence on the front probably comes from Cochrane. Um, and they tried to summarize studies about the rate of overdiagnosis in breast cancer a few years ago and estimated that, if I'm recalling the data correctly, um, about a third of yeah, all breast cancer diagnoses yeah. um, represent overdiagnosis. And I guess I would say that, I mean, I think overdiagnosis, the definition I favor is the definition you've embodied, which is that it is the detection of a lesion based on histopathology that appears indistinguishable from lethal cancer but that if left unchecked, untreated, in the rest of the person's natural life will not impair their mortality nor their morbidity. Exactly. I think that's a good definition of overdiagnosis. And some of that is related to the fact that, as you say, it's the competing risk. Yes. Um, that they may have other conditions that mean that an indolent cancer will never cause any problems. On the other hand, as, as you well know as an oncologist, our understanding of cancer on a histologic basis is really incomplete. Yes. Um, and there are certainly numerous examples of precancerous lesions that regress on their own. Yes. Um, and even probably some cancers as well. Yes. Things that we would classically define as an established cancer um, through immune surveillance and, um, you know, immune attack will regress. Yeah. And I mean, there have been a number of... Um I guess, observational studies that have kind of hinted at this phenomenon, looking at different cohorts of women in Sweden that have appeared over the decades in, in the, the literature. But I think it's clear, I guess I'd say this about screening tests. Um, all screening tests that are worth their salt, I mean, there are a few that d don't even find cancer. I mean, but I guess the first thing is they have to find more cancer or precancer lesions. The test I'm thinking of that doesn't even do that is a self-breast exam based on the randomized uh, 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 Shanghai study and the Russian study. Um, but most of them find more cancer. Transvaginal ultrasound yeah, and CA125 finds more cancer. Mammograms find more cancer. They find a heck of a lot more cancer, actually, it turns out. Mm -hmm. um, uh, CT screening for lung cancer finds more cancer. Uh, PSA screening finds more cancer. They all find more cancer. But then the question that you're facing is, do you find cancer that you can do something about that would otherwise have caused problems, and had you not done anything about it now, you couldn't do anything about it later that would have made things just as good? Right. Or are you finding a bunch of cancer that is either overdiagnosed, for which the only thing you can do to somebody is harm them, or you find a bunch of cancer that 
will progress to lethal cancer irrespective of what you do, in which case you've added a label and added treatment that is futile, that right. won't change outcomes. That's right. And I think you're alluding to essentially the third major bias that we discuss when thinking about um, cancer screening studies, and that's the idea of length time bias and yes. the types of cancers um, that you're going to detect with screening as opposed to clinical detection of cancers. Tell us about length time bias. And the essential idea here is that... Um, you want to use the rabbit and the the bird and the, you know this analogy? That I don't Gil know Welch this uses? analogy. Uh, Gilwatch says that uh, cancers are of three types. Yeah. They are turtle, turtles, rabbits, and birds. And the birds are the ones that no matter when you find them, they're going to fly, yep. fly out of the nest anyway. They're going to fly so fast. The rabbits are the ones that are going to gallop along fast enough that they'll cause a problem. And if you catch them early, you might be able to do something about it. The turtles are the ones that they're going to go so slow, they're never going to cause a problem no matter what you do. Right. And the goal of screening is to find more rabbits, less turtles, and less birds. Yeah. But what you do find is all screening will find more turtles, then less rabbits, and then least birds. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. That's a really nice analogy. Um, the way that I usually explain it in clinical terms yeah. is that if you imagine, um, and we'll stick with an example of breast cancer here, if you imagine two women at the same age um, diagnosed at the same time, and one has a very aggressive, high-grade, triple-negative tumor, and one has a much more indolent tumor type, um, if you imagine that they develop cancer at the same time, the person with the indolent tumor is much more likely to be identified by screening than right. the person with the much more aggressive cancer who's likely to present with, you know, for instance, breast pain or discharge. Or, and or bone lump, metastases. Or bone or lips, metastases, yeah. exactly. In other words, the window of time between the initiation of cancer and when it becomes clinically apparent is shorter in the highly aggressive triple negative, longer in the hormone receptor positive cancer. And so the longer it is, the more likely you'll be picked up on a screening test. Correct. And this emphasizes, again, why observational studies that are really meant to compare screen detected cancers to clinically detected cancers don't tell you the whole story. So when somebody told me that we know five-year survival with lung cancer before CT screening was 5%, and now that there is CT screening, it's 25%, therefore we're saving lives, that person will be committing at least at least one, it's but perhaps more than fallacy. one fallacy. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. Okay, so let me ask you this. Do you believe any screening test can justify itself in the absence of a randomized control trial? <laughs> Um, no, I don't. Yeah, I don't think the answer is Quite the answer. Is no. Yeah. So in other words, um, we can use observational data to get better clarity of the harms, better clarity of the real world utilization, better clarity of that diagnostic uh, odyssey of what happens in the real world. But we can never use real world data to prove fundamental efficacy of screening. To prove efficacy, you need randomization. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. 100%. And that is why... I think in these debates on screening, so many people say, they say that, I mean, uh, you, you're not privy to this because you're not on Twitter because you're actually smart. Um, <laughs> you don't waste your time with this. But I was in all these debates on Twitter and then somebody said that like, oh, the reason you're so critical of this, in this case it was CT screening for lung cancer, is because you're not aware of all the efficacy data. And I was like, well, as a matter of fact, I am aware of all the <laughs> efficacy data because all the efficacy data can fit in one hand. NLST, right. the, NLST. Danish the Danish study, which is really small and poorly yep. done. Nelson, which my understanding is has more protocol amendments than a, than a, than a, than a target after target practice in Texas. Uh, uh, that is, in other words, it's riddled with methodologic <laughs> holes. Uh, and, and a couple other like, oh, this Italian study, which randomized people to two different screening strategies, which is so small and underpowered to tell us anything useful. It really is NLST. Right. It really is NLST. 
Um, and NLST. And I, I yeah. think, you know, I think we should give credit where credit's due. NLST was not necessarily a bad trial. Um, well, I think there are concerns the about the generalizability um, of, of NLST. Um, but, uh, you know, these, and we should acknowledge that these are not easy trials to do. Let's talk um, about that. Yeah. And I, I think for many of the reasons that we talked about earlier, the relatively low prevalence in an asymptomatic screening population, the fact that you're going to have to follow people for very long periods of time to establish a benefit of screening, it is difficult. But ultimately, that's the only way that we'll really know whether there's a benefit in terms of reducing either cancer-specific mortality or overall mortality mm-hmm. by using a screening program. And I guess I would say, I, I, I agree with you that that um, NLST is a very well-done study. All of the studies that were sponsored by the NCI, uh, Division of Cancer Prevention, that were run sort of under the auspice of Barry Kramer, they're all really good studies. Mm-hmm. PLCO is a good study. Yeah. This is a good study. They're better than, I think, any other study ever done. Um, but they're not perfect studies. No, absolutely not. But some of these early studies that came out of Sweden on mammography, mm-hmm. um, some of the studies, the European study on prostate cancer screening. Respect, which is not hardly a study, it's really a meta-analysis of studies of varying levels of quality. I mean, I think these have a lot of methodologic problems. Let me put it to you, let me ask you this. I mean, we're critical of drug industry trials, but is it fair to say that the average pharmaceutical company running a mega 10,000 person cardiology study, the quality of that study, in terms of the randomization, the adherence, the follow-up, the fact that the control group was actually like a real control arm and not people who just got mailed a card in the mail and some <laughs> of them already deceased on entry, you know? But the quality of that study, is it fair to say the average pharma drug company study is better methodologically than the average cancer screening study? On its face, that's probably true. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, I think I think the issue is, is that with m- many pharmaceutical trials these days, you have to dig much deeper to identify the, 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 the way that they put their finger on the scale. Yeah. Um, you know, it's changing outcomes. It's, it's a variety of other ways that um, data is manipulated, um, as opposed to sort of the traditional domains of quality assessment that we think of for randomized controlled trials. That's fair to say. They yeah. will do appropriate allocation concealment. They will do use appropriate randomization techniques. Yes. There will ostensibly be an intention to treat analysis yes. <laughs> um, provided. Um, but the devil really with most of the new pharmaceutical trials is in the details. Yeah, I think that's fair. That's why we have plenary session to go through those. But you're <laughs> right. I mean, but I think in terms of the basic method, right. the, the quality uh, of the yeah. randomization, it's that's good. Fair. Okay, so... What else is on your on your in your checklist of things you like to tell people when you're introducing screening? Well, I, I think it's worthwhile to discuss shared decision making because okay. there are many people um, who will make the case that shared decision making is sort of the the best way forward. Okay. Um, when the benefits are are closely benefits and harms are closely balanced, um, and and I actually I, I don't disagree with that. I think that from a from the standpoint of providing patient centered care. The shared decision making is absolutely the way to go. It's what we should do with patients. Um, I think for those who are thinking about, um, on a broader level, on a population level, um, trying to reduce the overuse of screening or the inappropriate use of screening, I don't think that shared decision making is sort of the panacea that some have claimed it would be. Hmm. Um, and I think we know that from a couple of different um, avenues. I think, first of all, Cochrane had done a nice um, review of studies of shared decision-making. And the outcomes that have really been well-established with shared decision-making are things like the patient has more knowledge about the condition, um, that they perceive the risks more accurately, 
um, and to a lesser extent that they're more likely to make a values congruent decision after going through a shared decision making process. What most of the studies of shared decision making have not shown is that it reduces the use of or the overuse of the subject um, that's being discussed in shared decision making. Hmm. Um, so I think from the from the standpoint of policymakers or from a population health standpoint of trying to discourage overuse, um, shared decision making doesn't quite get us there. Yeah. I mean, there are good reasons in human psychology to to understand why shared decision making only gets us so far. Um, and there is, um, it, it really comes down to what I would describe as profound numeracy, um, and that you present someone with information saying that maybe one woman out of a thousand who chooses to undergo mammographic screening between the ages of 40 and 49 will avoid death from breast cancer. Mm -hmm. Um, the person who's looking at that probably has a sort of optimism bias and says, mm -hmm. well, that one person could, could be, be me. me. Um, and, you know, it's important to remember that, you know, the same person who's looking at that chart of the outcomes, um, you know, may have just bought a lottery ticket or have gone to the casino in Las Vegas. Mm -hmm. um, and we don't put risk in perspective very well. Um, yeah. And I think that's a human bias. So, like, the, I, I agree with you. I think that it is, I mean, people are good at dealing with probabilities that occur in day-to-day -day life. I think, you know, that there's a 70% chance it's going to rain or there's a less than 5% chance it's going to rain. Do I take a raincoat out or something like that and kind of eyeball the sky and see if it fits your gut feeling when you're leaving? Oh, we're good at these kind of probabilities. When you're talking about probabilities about screening. These are very, very low probabilities. Right. And, I, and I don't think that, I mean, and certainly not the case that evolution has like hardwired our brain to be really good at splitting hairs of low probability events. I mean, I'm talking about the benefits. The harms are often right. not low probability events. No, that's right. And I think it, that that same optimism bias, which tells someone I'm likely to be that one person out of a thousand right. who avoids a death from breast cancer is also the same optimism bias that says, oh, well, you know, the fact that, you know, I'll probably have unnecessary diagnostic testing that, you know, there could be complications from, you know, a needle biopsy, um, whatever. Um, that they're going to underestimate the likelihood of those harms happening to them. I see. Um, the statistic I always read for breast cancer screening, the one I think about that put it nicely, and this is kind of the Harding Center for Health Literacy, you know, Gerd Gigerenzer, uh, and others have kind of put these very nice infographics out there. This one, I think, comes from the Swiss Medical Board, uh, who actually wrote that provocative article in the New England Journal of Medicine a few years ago it's called Abolish Mammographic Screening. And they basically said that if you took an average risk woman, I think between the ages of 50 and 69, and you subjected her to 10 years of mammographic screening versus nothing, what do women believe? And they say of a thousand women who undergo screening, the average woman believes the death rate of breast cancer is 180 in the group of people that um, doesn't get screening and is half of that um, in the group of women that does get screening, like 90. So like a massive reduction in breast cancer right. death. But what they said is that the actual number is out of a thousand women who undergo screening for, I believe it was a decade, um, the actual number of deaths of breast cancer without screening is five, and with screening is four, mm -hmm. and the number of deaths of non-breast cancer-related causes is 39 without screening, and 39 or 40 with screening, because we're not sure we actually kind of increase off-target death from the harms we subject to that 30% of overdiagnosed women. Yeah, that's certainly provocative. Yeah, and so I think like when somebody looks at that and they say, oh, should I be screened with mammography, knowing there's a certain rate 
of having a false positive result and being called back for a repeat mammogram. There's a certain rate of having the doctor uh, put a clip in or doing a needle biopsy or putting a clip in and taking me to a surgical biopsy. And then if they do that, there's a certain rate that I'll be called back for a lumpectomy or something like this. That's and there's right. a certain rate I'll have cancer and I'll have to go chemo RT and all these kinds of things. Um, that That is a real risk. But the potential benefit of five to four in a thousand in the background of 39 or 40 other deaths. Um, that is what people have a difficult time appreciating. And, and I would just emphasize that those risks are probably magnified in the United States because of differences in the way that mammograms are read between the U.S. and Western Europe, um, probably differences in treatment patterns. Um, a, a woman is much more likely to have a false positive in the United States than in you know many countries in Western Europe where there's double reading of mammograms. Hmm. And I actually think that, and one of the other things that goes into this graphic is that the the risk reduction they're using as the benefit of mammographic screening is the pooled estimate that comes from all of the randomized control trials, um, but uh, something like 15 to 20% reduction in breast cancer death. But that may itself be inflated because we see as time goes on, this, the more recent mammographic screening studies, like the Canadian study that mm -hmm. came out a couple of years ago, those actually found less and less benefit. In fact, the Canadian study was a totally null study um, than the earlier studies that came out of Sweden and that came out of uh, the UK um, decades ago. Those found greater benefit. And if anything, all of the advances in adjuvant chemotherapy and imaging in surgical staging, in sentinel node dissection, in radiography and radiotherapy to axillary nodes and supraclavicular nodes, if those happen to be involved, all of these things have, if anything, diminuted the potential benefit of screening. And thus, the actual absolute benefits to women has probably gotten smaller over time. And this Swiss graphic nevertheless uses, I think, the pooled estimate across all time. Yeah. No, that's a great point. Um, so, okay, these are your principles of screening. So. What screening test do you believe in, Dr. Obley? <laughs> uh, good question. Um, uh, I think out of the tests that we currently routinely offer to patients for screening, um, I think probably the most compelling for me based on the data um, are colorectal cancer screening, some okay. form of colorectal cancer screening. I'm not going to specify colonoscopy or FIT or anything else. Um, or septin-9 genetic testing? Certainly not septin-9 <laughs> genetic testing. Yeah, okay. That's the one you actually vote against. Okay. Yeah, um, I'm going to have you unpack this a little bit more. But I think what you're saying is for um, for certainly men mm -hmm. and women, perhaps even to a lesser degree, because some of these new papers are suggesting maybe it's not the same, but certainly men, but maybe also women, over the age of 50, mm -hmm. below the age of 75. Correct. You would recommend, as the USPSTF does, one of the following tests, FOBT or FIT, okay, um, that's on the basis of randomized trials showing a reduction in cause-specific mortality, and FIT maybe has better test characteristics. Correct. Or flexible sigmoidoscopy performed every five years. Which is just generally not done that much anymore, but yes, it's an option that's well, um, maybe if Medicare, in the USPSTF. Maybe Medicare wanted to reimburse a little bit better. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> for $200 in that Medicare, but 1000 for colonoscopy, you think yeah. I'm going to do a Flexig? Fair enough. Come on. Come on, Adam. Give me, <laughs> make it worth my while, and I'll flex, we'll get some Flexigs going. Okay, but, but the nice thing about Flexig, I think, is that Strictly speaking, it is what has the randomized trial data. Um, colonoscopy true. doesn't. Um, you can get away with a couple fleets enemas, and you don't have to drink that gallon mm -hmm. of nasty stuff. Uh, okay, so flexig, or I guess colonoscopy. You're nodding your head because it basically is a, at least a, it is at least a flexig. Yes, at and least a flexig. It's, a, it's at least a flexig. Right. Yeah, it's a flexig, and then a little right. bit. 
somebody has supersized your fries, but it's a flex sake. Right. And hopefully we'll have more comparative data to better understand through randomized trials the relative merits of colonoscopy compared to less invasive strategies. Yeah, Dr. Uh, Lieberman's, fit. Yeah. Right. Yeah, Dr. Lieberman's randomized study, the VA, and there's right. another randomized study I'm aware of. But so these are the things you recommend. And I guess I'd say I just saw recently a pooled meta-analytic estimate of sigmoidoscopy versus doing nothing in the annals of internal medicine. And it actually says that finally the all-cause mortality is kind of tipped in favor of sigmoidoscopy. Yeah, it was always close yeah, it was always um, with all-cause mortality. So I, that's part of what leads me to say I think probably the most important cancer screening that we do is probably colorectal cancer screening. Yeah. And I guess the other thing we want to say is I think for this discussion, we're going to have to put... Um, cervical cancer screening on the side mm -hmm. because I think cervical it's cancer... It's changing. <laughs> yeah. It's changing very dynamically. It predated randomization. There's scattered randomized trials largely done in resource-poor settings. I think it's, it's a difficult thing to kind of talk about and to really understand what were kind of large-scale population mortality trends, what was driven by this. And so I think we're going to have to put that aside. Right. We're going to talk about colon screening, breast cancer screening, um, prostate cancer, and lung, which are the things we have randomized right. data for. And, and I would say that um, probably second on my list after colorectal cancer screening, and this may be to your chagrin. CT you, screening lung cancer. If you could if you could recreate the precise conditions mm -hmm. under which NLST um, was conducted, um, in terms of the additional follow-up, the quality of the surgical care that patients receive. Um, if you accept it just on the basis of the number needed to screen, um, NLST look, makes lung cancer screening look fairly attractive. Mm, well, 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 Dr. Obley, you coming to the lion's den and saying things like that. Well, I guess I'd say, I guess I'd say fair enough. I mean, I think in terms of like the number of people you need to diagnose to improve one life, the, the magnitude of the benefit, sure. But now I'm going to go into all the things I don't like about NLST. And, and the other thing I would say before, and I think it's totally appropriate to criticize NLST, um, I think that the work that's being done to try to better refine people's risk, um, because right now we have a fairly crude yeah. um, set of standards by which we judge whether or not someone should be screened for lung, lung cancer. And if we can better refine that risk, then it will make the screening proposition much more attractive. Yeah, I think, um, and and that's probably true for all these cancers. True, yeah, absolutely. And I guess the other thing I'd say is when you're talking about lung cancer screening, PSA screening, and mammograms, you know, they all have such lousy evidence, in my opinion, that I think, you know, you can pick which one of those three you want to, you like the best. The things about NLST that always trouble me are the following. Mm, one, the control arm of chest radiography. That's a really bad control arm. And I know they shot themselves in the foot because they had PLCO running, which was chest radiography right. versus doing nothing. And there's a subgroup of PLCO that kind of fit the NLST inclusion criteria. And they believed that I think PLCO was going to be positive. And they thought that if we launched NLST and we didn't have this inappropriate standard of care competitor, because it's not standard of care, it's an intervention as our control arm, we won't have answered the question, is CT better than chest radiography, which we think is going to be a winner. But of course, test radiography is not a winner. It actually did right. absolutely nothing except lead to extra procedures. And and thus, I think we got in this kind of pickle. So I guess one of my biggest problems with that study is, of course, I don't know how chest CT compares to doing nothing. Correct. I think that's a fair criticism. The other problem I have with that study is it didn't really document what I want to know, which is of a thousand people who get CT screening for lung cancer, how many needle biopsies, VATs, thoracotomies, um, pneumonectomies occur in that arm and how many occurred in the control arm because that you know the protocol 
and, and the tables that report the rates of surgical procedures, they only included the first subsequent procedure, and they didn't include the second or third or fourth or fifth. They didn't get the full odyssey, the right. full cascade. No, that's right. And I think that's where the real world data can be really yeah. helpful in understanding oh, the, that's true. Yeah. in trying to understand that balance between benefits and harms. And, and I completely agree with you that much of the data that's come out subsequently has raised concerns um, that, that in particular with lung cancer, the diagnostic odyssey could be quite harmful. Yeah. The other thing, and of course it can, because you can kill a person by the diagnostic Absolutely. odyssey. The other thing that troubles me is that uh, although they like to report outcomes in that 2009 paper, at the precise moment where wind blew favorably and all-cause mortality was tipped into significance, uh, I suspect that's a very um, uh, dubious finding uh, that the all-cause mortality is significant uh, because it's heavily driven, or at least driven to some degree, by an imbalance in non-lung cancer death that just happened to occur at that moment. It's true. Probably over time, you know, we saw in that study, what was it, an 18% reduction in lung cancer death, and that probably is enough to have a maybe 4% reduction in all-cause mortality, probably not enough to reach significance with that sample size, but, you know, that's another can of worms. Um, now let's talk about mammograms and PSA screening. Where do you put those two? <laughs> um, I, I think after, you know, discussing why I don't think that shared decision-making is necessarily um, all that helpful from a population standpoint, I think shared decision-making really is um, the paradigm for which we should approach the discussions for all of these, but in particular mammography and PSA screening. Um, Do you normally have shared decision-making for useless interventions in your clinic? <laughs> <laughs> Not saying they're useless, I'm just saying, if it were useless, would you include it in shared decision-making? Um, I, I think as long as we're practicing in an environment in which um, the USPSTF mm -hmm. um, recommends you know, at least having these discussions with patients, I think Fair enough. that's probably the right thing to do. Um, but I, I think we should be candid with patients about what we know are the limitations of those tests as part of that shared decision-making discussion. Um, the specifics, as we sort of alluded to at the beginning of this discussion, um, a lot of people were confused by the change in the USPSTF recommendations regarding prostate cancer screening. And when I discuss this with the residents, I think the point that I make, and this emphasizes something that we talked about earlier, is that every screening decision really comes down to the balance of benefits and harms. And I think the reason that prostate cancer screening may be more attractive now than it was five years ago um, really reflects a change in the practice of how intensively positive PSAs are worked up. Um, and then when prostate cancer is you know, identified, um, the intensity of treatment that's provided, um, which serves to reinforce the, the difficulty of understanding the benefits of screening. The urologists have chilled out a little bit, is what you're saying. Yeah, I think that's fair. They've chilled out. They used to, the moment they saw that Gleason 6, they prostatectomied everybody with their robot, their unproven robot. They dusted that robot off and they said it was better and then they did it. But now at least they can restrain themselves. They can, they can hold themselves back for a minute to place the MRI endorectal coil and perform an MRI. <laughs> So they can hold themselves back from the procedures. They can do the NMRI, but then, you know, in a Gleason 6, they can hold off and do some active surveillance. So that's, I think, and I think you're right. That's why, that's in part why the USPSTF guidance, I believe in 2012, went from grade D, harms exceed benefits, to grade C, which is have a discussion with your doctor, to which, of course, the urologist popped the champagne bottles, <laughs> and then they had a little celebration. But it's grade C, we're red business. <laughs> C. 
I, I think this just seeks to, or I think in this case, it helps to emphasize that you can't just think about a screening test in isolation. Yes. In understanding the benefits of a screening test, you also have to think about all of the care that goes along with it, diagnostically and therapeutically. I think PSA screening is, boy, it's a tough one. It's got such lousy data. Uh, <laughs> I mean, we have the PLCO study, which basically compared yearly PSA screening versus maybe opportunistic a, screening, a right. one-time contamination, right. a one-time contamination over a decade, opportunistic. That's And that's, I mean, people always fault PLCO for that contamination. You, look in the mirror <laughs> if you want to look at who's responsible for the contamination. It's you. You, the profession, who could not restrain yourself and have somebody on the control arm of the study not get screened because screening was running bonanzas back then. It was running bonkers. I guess the other thing about shared decision-making is I find it a bit cynical because having spent so many years kind of watching how it happened, at least in the last decade and maybe a little bit before that, um, I, I just feel like the vast majority of situations I've seen there was never any discussion. People just check the box and just send these tests off. You go, go get your mammogram before you see me next time. Get your mammogram. See you. That's the discussion. That's not an that's nothing. No, I totally agree. And I think you you raise an important point, which is, you know, simply saying that shared decision making has occurred doesn't is no guarantee of the quality of the shared decision making right. discussion. Right. So I guess some of the other things about prostate cancer screening. Uh, you know, there've been a number of randomized control trials now, maybe about five or six randomized control trials that are fairly large and well done. The PLCO screening test found no reduction, statistically significant reduction in prostate cancer death, nor a reduction in all-cause mortality. The European study found a 20% reduction in prostate cancer-specific mortality, not all-cause mortality. Correct. And, and it took quite a long time and to demonstrate that. 13, 13 years. years. Yeah. 13 years. And, and, and. Uh, it was only found in some of the nations that were participating, That's but correct. not other nations. And I think it's interesting because when last I checked, the number needed to diagnose, the number of cases of prostate cancer you needed to diagnose, presumably act upon to avert one death from prostate cancer, was still in the low 20s, low to mid 20s. Maybe I think actually was still was 27, I think, in the Lancet publication. That sounds about right. Yeah, and 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 you know we wrote that satirical article a couple years ago, that modest proposal article, where we said that if you just took every man at the age of forty and just did a prophylactic prostatectomy, your number needed to diagnose is, is actually thirty three. Lifetime risk of prostate cancer around three percent. So actually, PSA screening is such a bad test that you are doing so many prostatectomies to save one life for twenty percent of people that if you just took everyone's prostate out, you'd save many many more lives. You know, you'd save four times as many lives. Um, and you'd have roughly the same harm to benefit ratio. <laughs> the same casualty ratio will be preserved. So it's silly not to just cut it all out. We're going to need more robots. Yeah, right. You've got to dust off the Da Vinci's. Okay, so that's the PSA debate. And I think the other thing about PSA screening is, um, you know, when we talk about the harms and particularly the harms of being treated if you didn't need to be treated, those are not trivial harms. No, not at all. Um, you know, prostatectomy comes with a substantial risk of um, urinary incontinence and sexual dysfunction. Um, radiation therapy comes with a significant risk of radiation proctitis. Um, Rectal incontinence. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, even thinking about some of the other examples, um, going back to, I alluded to the work that Gil Walsh did on um, thyroid cancer. Um, overdiagnosis, many patients will end up undergoing radical procedures um, to eradicate their thyroid cancer, um, many of which will turn out to be indolent thyroid cancers that um, would never have harmed them. Hmm. Um, and that was also part of the work that he did was showing the increase in the number of neck dissections. And 
Yeah, I think the thyroid cancer, which is an opportunistic screening, the incidence has just gone up like like the Dow Jones Industrial Average, yes, and the yep. death from prostate cancer is as flat. Or thyroid cancer has been sorry, completely flat. It's as flat as the median household income. Yep, that's right, and that's that's been true not just in the opportunistic screening setting, the sort of incidental screening setting that we see in the United States, but in countries that have implemented um, systematic thyroid cancer screening South programs, Korea. South Korea being mm-hmm. the most notable. Yeah. That's a good one. Okay. Um, mammographic screening. You're smiling. I, I'll be honest. I don't, um, given that my clinical practice is in uh, a the VA, VA hospital, um, I'm not doing as many of these shared decision-making discussions, um, and I'm not having to, to cross that bridge quite as often. Well, I'm surprised that these um, the advocates for screening, some of the most ardent proponents, have not yet recommended it for men as well, because men also can get breast cancer, Adam. And even though it's a little bit more rare than in women, if screening is good for some people, if a little is good, a lot is better. Well, now that everyone knows their BRCA status from their 23andMe. Of course. um, Now you know who to screen. Now maybe male breast cancer screening should be. Mm. Well, I guess about breast cancer screening, I would just say, I guess we'll save it for a future thing because uh, there's a lot to say there. But I think overdiagnosis is problematic. False positives are problematic. The treatments have gotten better over time. The magnitude of benefit is debatable. In the Cochrane meta-analysis by um, Peter Gutsch and colleagues, they have this table of adequately randomized trials and the point estimate of benefit and inadequately randomized trials and the point estimate of benefit, pointing out that some of the trials had really kind of gross imbalances that you might not expect if the trial were like actually properly randomized the way any pharmaceutical company would ran- even <laughs> even the way a pharmaceutical company would randomize. And what they find is the point estimate of benefit is larger in the inadequately randomized versus the adequately randomized studies, which I think Cast further uh, cautionary note there. Absolutely, there's that. Ni- there's a nice paper by Peter Juni in the Annals of Internal Medicine where he plots the the Z score for non-breast cancer mortality and shows. And this is something that Gil Welch and Bill Black have done, which is they have all these people have explored what happens in a randomized screening trial for death not from the target cancer. And if you start to see imbalances either favorable or unfavorable that are beyond the benefit of the target screening, you start to wonder if there's something wrong with the study because you shouldn't be. A breast cancer screening should not be lowering your rate of dying of MI. Uh, CT screening of lung cancer should not be lowering the rate at which you die of pancreas cancer. You know, it shouldn't have anything to do with that. That's right. And so if there are imbalances there, you have to start asking tougher questions. And I think Bill Black's paper from 2000 in the JNCI was a good one. Um, this Peter Juni paper in Annals of Internal Medicine was a good one. Uh, anyway, we'll save that for another day. Now, I want to talk to you a little bit about the, the new holy grail, blood-based cancer screening. These people on the blood-based cancer screening, it's as if they've learned enough. They've learned nothing. So one of the things I see is like, you know, I mean, people ask me like, what do you think about the, the prospects of a single blood-based screening test for cancer? I say, boy, boy, do you have an uphill battle there. One, the first thing right off the bat is any circulating proteomic or genomic or transcriptomic marker of cancer is probably much more likely to be found in advanced or metastatic disease than it is to be found in early stage disease. So the first thing is, you might not be finding early stage cancers, you might just be finding a lot of late cancers in which the only thing you're probably gonna be doing if it's incurable, which it probably is because it's a solid tumor, is add lead time. Yeah, you're, uh, you're finding Gil Welch's birds in you're, your analogy. Exactly, you're finding birds. You're finding birds a little bit before they've flown out of the yard 
and you're giving lead time bias, but you're not helping anybody. You're not finding rabbits. Um, and because those are probably the cancers that are shedding more. And I think there's you know some literature that actually does support some of that. Uh, okay, then the next thing is, let's say you do find, you find a way somehow miraculously to have some blood-based signature for a cancer, um, and, and it is somehow miraculously preferentially from early stage versus late stage tumors. Then you have this challenge of, once you know that it's there, how do you localize it? You need to image it. And what imaging test is going to point out where it is and not point out a bunch of just, you know, normal stroma? It's the resurgence of full body CT or MRI. That's right. My executive physical. Exactly. The executive physical, which is what, as you know, I participate in every year. <laughs> my annual PET CT. <laughs> and one of these days, my adrenal gland will stop glowing. <laughs> yeah, so I get my PET CT. And you know, when you get an annual PET CT, it's not just a diagnostic test, Adam. It's also radiotherapy. I want you to know that. It's also therapeutic radiation. Good point. Uh, <laughs> so, so that's the executive physical. So, but you have, you'll have to localize it. And let's say you find the signature from an early pancreas cancer lesion. Is it in the tail? Is it in the head? Colon cancer. What are you going to do? Uh, if you find some blood total signature. Total colectomy. Total colectomy. Yeah. These, I mean, but these are the questions that people are going to be asking, which is you have to localize it and cut it out ostensibly. And that is an uphill battle. That's a big uphill battle. And then the next thing is the real way that anyone with a, I don't want to say something super mean, but anyone who's ever thought about screening or knows anything at all about cancer screening, what they will want to see is a randomized trial showing that your blood-based test, as opposed to routine standard of care, which is doing nothing, will improve the death rate from all cancer death or hopefully the death rate from all cause mortality. And that will take a randomized trial that probably runs about 13 years follow-up Maybe less if you're finding if you think you're going to be hitting a home run, but it's not going to be easy. It's probably going to be a fifty thousand, hundred thousand person randomized trial with a decade of follow up. That is not an easy thing to show. And anyone who wants to implement this before you get me that study is really in need of some serious therapy, <laughs> serious therapy and education. They need to know the history of screening. Yeah, I think that's right. I think it's an uphill battle. Um, all right. So last thoughts on cancer screening. Most of your career and my career is similar. Uh, wouldn't you say it's fair to say that screening was really pushed on people kind of inappropriately? Uh, I think that's fair. I think, um, I think in medical education, um, much of the nuance about screening um, is not taught. Mm -hmm. And I think that just like everyone else, um, you know, students in, in medical school um, also have that sort of that sort of intrinsic bias that it's a form of preventive medicine. It's mm -hmm. the sort of thing that we can be doing to keep people healthy. Um, and that's, you know, the, the benefits when they are there are usually quite marginal at the population level. Yeah, if at all. If at all. Yeah. Um, so I, I think that's one aspect of it. To, if you're asking in an individual patient encounter, do we push it too hard? Um, in your course of your career, think about 2009, mm -hmm. 2008, PSA screening, especially a place like the VA where it's one of those little checklist buttons. Right. Well, so that's a, that's a separate <laughs> can of worms yeah. about the effects of you know, quality improvement programs. Yeah, on, the quality improvement programs whipped, right. whipped us, whipped uh, doctors to screen. Yes. Lots of inappropriate screening happened yes. as a result. No, I think that's right. I think those certainly had an unintended consequence mm -hmm. um, of promoting overuse and inappropriate screening. It should have led to like a to sort of a rethinking of like, before we subject healthy people to interventions, we really need to get our ducks in a row. We need to have better data. We need to be honest and truthful about what was known and unknown was really merely speculated. Absolutely. Here are some of the other things we didn't talk about too much, which is, is it fair to say that some of the people who are the most ardent proponents of screening 
coincidentally have their entire field bolstered or supported by the revenue that comes from that diagnostic odyssey? <laughs> um, in some cases, that's certainly true. Um, I, you know, probably the counter example to that is that um, most PSA testing was actually being done by primary care providers uh-huh. because it's a less invasive, less uh-huh. technical test. The interpretation is somewhat more straightforward. Uh-huh. But some At of least, the most ardent, uh, you know, campaigners oh, were noted urologists. Absolutely. Yeah. No, without a doubt. Um, are radiologists certainly the most ardent proponents of mammography? Without a doubt. Yeah. And what I find so interesting is that these specialties... They all, I mean, one of the arguments that they use, and I made a list recently of like kind of the bizarre arguments they use. I'm going to try to pull that up, actually. <clears throat> okay, yeah. So this is, the, this is something I tweeted recently. I'm going to write a bio. Since you're not on Twitter, you wouldn't have read it. I say this is my, my reflections on, on being part of online debates on screening. Discussing or debating cancer screening is frustrating. Here is why, thread. One, motivated reasoning. Entire specialties of medicine are justified by the revenue from screening and downstream interventions, hence massive motivated reasoning to believe. Two, a contest of who really cares about patients. Frequently, people comment that, you know, people who are pro-screening, we actually care about patients. We don't want people to die of cancer screening. We care. When that's obviously a disingenuous argument. We all care. You care, I care. The thing is, some of us want to let data and facts guide our actions, and some people want to let optimism guide their actions. And what's better for people is to let data and facts guide actions. Um, Three, um, I say nearly no discussion of the technical aspects of trial design, inclusion, endpoint adjudication, and harms monitoring. I think on some of these other podcasts, we talk about how death is adjudicated. Mm-hmm. We didn't get into it too much, but cause-specific death, of course, is not, um, right. it, it, you know, when, when you pass away, it's not something you can read off the person's uh, name tag. It doesn't appear on their, you know, their skin, the cause of death. You have to make a judgment, and that is not always a clear judgment. No, that's right. The extraordinary subjectivity of death determinations, and even autopsy findings. Which is why I, as you know, am a proponent that all-cause mortality should be powered and designed for all-cause mortality. And I actually think kind of a corollary there is people say, oh, the trial will have to be mega. It'll be so big if you had the power for all-cause mortality. And I hate to say that, you know, you're, you're conceding something quite great off the bat. What you're saying is that this strategy is so unlikely to make a major difference in someone's life that we would need a million people to see this tiny, tiny marginal difference in survival. And what you're really saying is that maybe it's not worth doing because it's not worth powering the trial for that. When there are a number of interventions we don't do a great job at that would save way more lives, like blood pressure control. Right. Absolutely. Weight loss. Um, okay. The constant rhetoric of saves lives that with, with the implication that anyone who disagrees is pro-death. Um, oh, the use of non-randomized studies with cure rates by stage or five-year survival by stage, which are, as we've talked about, plagued by lead time bias. The total confusion between cause-specific death and all-cause mortalities. It's often hard to adjudicate cause-specific death. Um, limited exposure or discussion or understanding of overdiagnosis. This is one that gets me number eight. Appeal to expertise. I'm an expert in this tumor type. So does that mean that, interestingly, radiologists understand population screening best when it comes to mammograms, but urologists understand the principles best when it comes to prostate cancer? It's so strange that that understanding principles of screening that are universal really do apply tissue by tissue, tumor by tumor. Didn't know that. Um, The belief that being an advocate for a disease means you must be an advocate for screening. I think that's a poison that's out there. Um, And I think number 10 was the repetitiveness of the discussion, uh, C1 through 9. 
<laughs> and then I ended this this quote, which is a Carl Sagan quote, which is, what counts is not what sounds plausible, not what we would like to believe, not what one or two witnesses claim, but only what is supported by hard evidence, rigorous and skeptically examined. Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Oh, the last thing, um, you know, Gil Welch has that really nice paper called The Likelihood That a Woman Whose Breast Cancer Was Diagnosed Through Mammography Had Her, Quote, Life Saved by That Diagnosis. And this was like a JAMA Internal Medicine paper where one of the things you always hear in the screening debates is, look, you don't need to tell me about screening. My life was saved because I had a mammogram and I found my breast cancer. And of course, what that assumes is you didn't find an overdiagnosed cancer. You found a cancer that would otherwise not have been detected and would have spread and been lethal. Um, that it, what, it wouldn't be that you would have felt it a year later as a lump and still had the same curative outcome because in that case, mammograms wouldn't have helped. And Gil Welch goes through all these reasons and he comes up with this figure that, well, the average woman undergoing mammogram graphic screening, even assuming the most favorable 15 to 20% point estimate of benefit, only had a 13% likelihood that her life was saved by the tumor that was found through mammograms, which is really quite sobering. It is, absolutely. The other piece that I would um, commend to your listeners, also by Gil Welch, and not directly pertinent to screening, but to sort of this broader issue of um, uh, of overdiagnosis, um, I believe it's called on silver linings or something about silver linings. And I believe it was in... Um, JAMA internal medicine. Hmm. He essentially makes the case that, um, you know, someone who has an incidental renal lesion on CT that then undergoes a partial nephrectomy and finds out that it's benign um, will often state that they're grateful to, right. you know, to have a new lease on life, that their life was saved. Um, whereas if someone, um, through a case of mistaken identity, um, assaulted you on the street and badly injured you, so much so that you lost a kidney, right. you certainly wouldn't be thanking that person. Right, right. Um, and in many cases, our incidental findings um, are, nothing more, than are nothing more than a case of mistaken identity. Nothing more than an assaulter, yeah. The last thing I wanted to talk to you is about opportunity cost, which is, you know, to me, one of the most pernicious, understudied, perhaps even poisonous parts of screening is that, you know, the amount of time that somebody has to spend with their doctor get to know their doctor and talk about things that matter to them is already so, so limited in our system. And all of our efforts to push screening into primary care has really pushed other things out. And a lot of it has been pushed out is, you know, the part of primary care doctoring that was perhaps the most joyous, which is really getting to know somebody mm -hmm. and hear about what matters to them. What do you think about that? That, I mean, how much of the time of the primary care appointment is screening and yeah. not all these other things? No, great point. Um, just one of the screening shared decision-making discussions that we've talked about today could take up an entire 15 or even 30-minute visit right. um, if it's done well um, and in a way that really elicits the patient's values and preferences and tries to, to map those to our best understanding of what the benefits and harms of screening are. Um, and, and of course, that does come at an opportunity cost. You know, at that same visit, you may have lost out on the opportunity to discuss someone's elevated blood pressure, um, and the chance to either discuss dietary or pharmacologic interventions or exercise interventions um, that would benefit that person, or weight loss, something that's criminally underdiscussed in most primary care settings. Mm -hmm. um, so th there certainly are opportunity costs, and then you know there is, of course, the the broader point that you're making, which is much of the joy of primary care um, isn't in the details of conditions um, or screening discussions. It's about getting to know patients. Um, and I see that less and less, unfortunately. Yeah, I think that that is the one unintended consequence of this juggernaut of screening, 
which has diverse motivations, uh, perhaps human optimism and and innumeracy have something to do with why it's pushed so hard, um, but it's pushed a lot of things out, and it's become an easy thing to measure and become a quality metric, which is used to, even to my understanding now, some primary care doctors, a percent of their salary is tied to the rate at which women agree to have mammographic screening, for instance. Uh, you're nodding your head. That's quite problematic to me. I agree. Well, I want to thank you for your time. This is this is screening 101. I mean, I didn't think we haven't even gotten into like the, the the deeper issues, which is you can really, really put all these trials on the table and go through them. I mean, like with prostate cancer, we can go through the different trials, some of the difficulties with the European study. Then we can also talk, I think, in prostate cancer we didn't talk about, which was the difference between the Scandinavian prostatectomy trial in the era in which prostate cancer was largely detected through symptoms and the more recent PROTECT study uh, um, in the era in which prostate cancer was largely detected through PSA um, and, and the more recent trial PIVOT. Uh, by Tim Wilt and colleagues in the New England Journal of Medicine, which shows that, you know, that mortality benefit that we had thought existed for prostatectomy in the era in which prostate cancer was detected one way may not be present in an era in which prostate cancer is detected a different way. Um, I think when it comes to mammographic screening, there's a really wonderful book by Peter Gocha, Truth, Lies, and Controversy, which is about some of the, the battles he's had about mammographic screening over the years. Um, and as I recall, he's no stranger to controversy. He's no stranger to controversy, yeah. Um, but some of his best work was his original work that really teased apart some of the challenges in these clinical trials on cancer screening. Um, and he faced a lot of pushback for that. Um, and of course, Gil Welch, who's done, I think, so much work, along with Steve Wolishin and the late Lisa Schwartz, who was wonderful on cancer screening and better understanding the issue. Uh, and I guess what I'd say is, I mean, I've almost kind of, I have kind of given up on mammograms and PSA. Those ships have sailed. I thought CT screening for lung cancer was something where more people would have demanded confirmatory trials. And this Nelson trial that's never been published doesn't stop anyone from saying how wonderful it is, but it's really never been published. And there've been some um, journalistic reports say that there have been many, many, many protocol amendments, and there's going to be some kind of methodologic issues that we're going to have to discuss when it does get published and those are revealed. And I think there's also something to be said for when you run a very large randomized trial of a popular cancer screening and you put out a press release and then nine months later you still haven't published a paper, uh, you got to start wondering why that paper is not out there already. Because I'll tell you something, if it was really robust, rock solid science, everyone's going to want to publish that paper for the impact factor. Um, uh, so that's going to be something that's discussed. Um, I think I'm very scared about this whole blood-based cancer screening because I think it's just going to be like the problems of the of these other screening tests, which was we weren't ready to implement things, and we just jumped ahead and implemented it. And then decades later, we're stuck with studies uh, with opportunistic screening in the control arm because we jumped the gun and implemented something before we had any idea if it helped people or hurt people. Yeah. I, I think a good way to conclude um, sort of screening 101 is that it's completely fair to say that the enthusiasm for screening and the optimism about screening uh, far outpaces the data that supports the population health benefits of screening. Yeah, I think that's it. That that the consistent signal is people's expectations of and the enthusiasm for screening outpaces the demonstrated benefits of screening in well-done studies. Um, and, and that's something that we have to at least acknowledge and hopefully, hopefully solve. Well, Adam, thanks for coming on the plenary session stage. For Pete... And who knows what's next? We'll get you back here for the fifth one. Thanks, Vinay. You've been listening to Season 2 of Plenary Session. I've been your host, Dr. Vinay Prasad. 
Plenary Session was produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. Review this podcast at the iTunes Store. Supporters of this podcast can back us on Patreon. Patreon allows you to support artists you like, and Patreon backers will get access to all of the slides discussed on Plenary Session. Got questions for the show? Tweet to us at plenary underscore session or email us at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. We love fielding listener questions. Thanks for listening.